Warning, this episode contains spoilers and strong language. I am back with AJ. We are here for the second segment of this episode, where we have now gone and read the first of two scripts for when John Carpenter was attached to the Firestarter. AJ, had you ever heard about any of the backstory behind his involvement on this series before? Just that he had been signed to do it by Universal and that the failure, commercial and critical, of the thing over the summer of 82 is what caused them to remove him from the project. Right. That's basically it. I knew that Bill Phillips had worked on a draft. I don't believe I was aware that Bill Lancaster had done any work on it. That's one of the interesting things is a lot of the recent trivia around this mostly only talks about the Phillips version. Whereas I actually dug through a lot of like the Starlog articles from the time, including got a really nice juicy interview with John where he just really dishes into how angry he was. I'll probably save that for the end of the episode when we get to the end of the third segment. But yeah, a lot of the old trivia only mentions Lancaster. Hmm. Apparently, Phillips, that only came out in a recent interview that he did where he mentioned it. But yeah, for those who don't know, both Bill Phillips and Bill Lancaster worked on this movie with John. And basically, the way John got involved in this project is that the Firestarter rights were owned by Dino De Laurentiis. And as we mentioned, Firestarter was like the second of six films that Dino De Laurentiis did adapting Stephen King. At the time, De Laurentiis and Carpenter were actually working together on the Halloween sequels because De Laurentiis produced parts two and three. Just kind of naturally, they ended up together on this project. And John was very instrumental in developing the adaptation that we're definitely going to have things to say about. But the first writer he brought in was Bill Lancaster, who at the time had worked with him on The Thing. This literally came right while Thing was still in the works. It hadn't even come out yet. And then I don't know what led to the shift in writers, but then they brought in Bill Phillips. Carpenter and Phillips hadn't worked together yet, but after Firestarter fell apart, John adapted Christine, which Phillips was the writer on. And Phillips and John also worked together on El Diablo, which was a Western that John was going to do in the 80s that ultimately got done by other people as a TV movie in the 90s. We did an episode on it, so people can go back and listen to that. I like that one. Have you seen the movie? Yeah, I have the DVD. Yeah, no, it is interesting. I'd be curious to see what the original was supposed to be like, but I'm still kind of happy with what we got. Mm -hmm. And then Phillips also... Also then worked with John on the Creature from the Black Lagoon version that John was going to do in the 90s. <laughs> so it's interesting that we get like two different regular collaborators of John here. And the way we're breaking this up, we've got the Lancaster draft. We've read the Lancaster draft. We're going to discuss it here. And then we got one more segment of this episode where we're going to read the Phillips rewrite. And it is a rewrite. It wasn't just he came in and did a new draft from scratch. It does say based on the earlier screenplay by Bill Lancaster. Just to get into it real quick, Bill Lancaster is, of course, the son of Burt Lancaster, the famous Hollywood legend. Bill, other than The Thing, had only ever written two other movies, The Bad News Bears and The Bad News Bears Go to Japan. <laughs> he didn't do part two, but he came back for part three. Otherwise, he has no other production credits. After Firestarter, I don't know of any other projects, even unproduced ones, that he worked on. And then sadly, he died in the 90s at age 49 of a heart attack. And I know he had actually been quite ill, suffered from polio for most of his life. But otherwise, I don't know much else about him. And I have to admit, I've never seen Bad News Bears. <laughs> 
It's wonderful. You should. It's kind of funny that, you know, his only two credits are these two screwball 70s comedies and two horror movies with John Carpenter, (laughs) one of which never got made. (laughs) That is odd. So we got the Lancaster draft and the story is still the same basic framework, sort of, of the original novel. But the big changes are they restructure it. So it's the whole Lot 6 college experiment and the parents' backstory is actually the entire first act of the movie. The second act is the father and daughter on the run. And then the third act is Charlie, now several years older, suddenly in the shop facility and coming into her own. That big restructure is one big change, and then the other big change is John Rainbird has been completely removed. I'm sure we're going to have a lot to say on both those changes, as well as a lot of the other little (laughs) tweaks and changes here and there. Before we really get into digging into the meat of it, just did you enjoy reading this? And would you like to have seen John direct this, this particular specific draft? Well, it was not an unenjoyable read. It was professional enough and a decent read in and of itself. I was thinking about in terms of whether or not I would enjoy it if John had directed this. And I suppose he could have made it work. I don't know that it completely works for me as a read on the page. Again, I mean, it's fine, but I don't necessarily know that changing the structure of the story to make it play as a linear storytelling fashion I don't know that that makes it any better. I don't know that that is something that needed to be done. I, I, I'm i not really thrilled with it, honestly. I do like that some of the stuff in that first act, like you said, the way it starts, and it starts in San Francisco for whatever reason, I guess, to really play up the whole, this is the time of peace and love and hippies and acid, man, woo, and I don't know that that was a necessary change, I suppose. It's really just cosmetic in some ways, but then in other ways, I do like the answers first, questions later of both the original novel and the way that the movie went about it. Mm -hmm. I do like dropping you into the middle of the action. And I'm sure that John could have made it play in an exciting way. I do trust his craft enough, especially at that point in his career, that I think he could have made it work at least well enough to be enjoyable while you're watching it. Would it resonate or be something that would hang out with you or become a new favorite? I don't know. Yeah, it's fine. We'll get into this more later, I'm sure. But yeah, I'm not real thrilled with taking the wandless character and Rainbird and kind of mashing them up and making a new composite character out of the two of them. I don't think that works for me at all. But the rest of it, by and large, as an adaptation, is pretty faithful. Minor details here and there aside, even though I don't necessarily think those are changed for any good reason. Mm. I can't really say why certain things are different from the book other than just to be different or to throw a surprise at someone who would be familiar with the story from the novel and kind of keep them on their toes. I don't know. I can't speak to what their intent was. It feels kind of arbitrary to me as a reader. It's like, why did you do this? And I can't come up with any good answers other than that. And I will say, I did also find an interview with Dean Cundy where he mentioned he was signed on to do the cinematography on this. (laughs) That hurts. I do quite enjoy the script. I think it's one of those things like as its own thing, I think it actually works quite well for the most part. I think it's sharp. It's exciting. It's got a nice little cheeky humor to it. The moments of fire and action are really strong when they erupt. If he had filmed this, just kind of separating it from the book as an adaptation of the book, had John filmed this, John's style, John's score, Cundy's direction, his great makeup effects, I think this would have been a really solid movie. However, 
I think that there are things that they did in the adaptation that do weaken the material to a point where it's not as strong as it could be. I mean, it could still be a really solid entertaining movie, but I think some of the changes that they made did weaken it structurally, did weaken some of the characters. And I think it definitely needed to sit down and reevaluate how far it was straying from. Some of the things where it strays from the book, I'm like, ooh, I like that edition. I like that new idea. Or some of the things they change, it's like, yeah, you know, I wasn't too attached to that version of the book. But there's like two significant things that it does that I think do weaken the story from what it originally was. And I think those are two things that needed to be fixed before this went to screen. And, and maybe that's something that does get fixed in the Phillips draft. We'll see. But we'll just go ahead and start with those two big things. Okay. One of them, for me at least, is I don't dislike the restructuring of the story, except for the fact that I think it does diminish Charlie as a character. That she has so much less screen time. Yeah, I think the way it starts with them on the run and them being in danger and the certain level of panic and fear and paranoia that that exudes and produces from the characters. I think having them be under that pressure and illustrating her power in the scene where he's having her go from phone to phone to get the change Mm -hmm. and stuff, that also brings up the conflict that you realize that this is something she's been trying very hard not to do and has been taught is the bad thing and Now, because of circumstance, she's being forced to do it, even though she's come to a conclusion in her head that to do so makes her bad, etc. I think those are very strong character elements that starting with her literally when she comes on the scene in this restructured version, it's when she's born and then she's little and then, you know, she grows up. And I just think it's more powerful to do the whole in media res thing and just throw them right into the middle of it, you know? My big thing is that Charlie is the main character. She needs to be the main character. Definitely. And she needs to be involved throughout the film. And I kind of get what they're doing here. They're kind of doing the psycho thing of you're transitioning from one lead to another where it starts out as the parents then it becomes parent and child then it becomes child you know that's interesting that is interesting but i think you need charlie from the beginning to at least get a sense of her character before you get into the backstory what's interesting is the film and the novel all of the backstory flashbacks they still got through all that in the first act yeah that's not something that was like throughout the film they still got that all done within the first half hour And I think you could still very easily restructure the first half of this script to have them on the run interspersed with the story of why they're on the run. Agreed. It was nice in a way, as a fan of the novel and the story, to see a lot more details in that opening act from the book itself. Andy going back to the classroom and finding out that certain Mm -hmm. parts of it weren't a hallucination brought on by the trial, the whole Quincy character and everything. That's great that he kept it, but reading it, it made me think, okay, well, they're playing this up a bit harder than they did in the movie we all know. And that made me think that maybe this would hit the whole government conspiracy slash paranoid thriller a little harder. Mm -hmm. But they really didn't. They were just holding on to some of the material from the book, which is fine. But I don't know that the fact that the movie version that we do have lost those details didn't really harm it. That's stuff that they could have left out as they did, and it would not have hurt the movie. It probably would have helped it, like you said, if they're going to do it in a linear fashion. You can lose those details and get to Charlie all the quicker, being as how she is indeed the main character of the story. What was fascinating about rereading it was the finished film is basically an abridged version of the book. It's a pretty straightforward adaptation. All they did was just chop out extraneous stuff here and there. 
And what's fascinating is all the stuff that they cut out is in here, despite the fact that this is a much looser adaptation. <laughs> but what's unfortunate about that is they also expand the first half so much. Both the novel and the film, basically the first act ends on the Manders farm. And then you have the second act, and then the third act is she's on the shop. This one, it's like the Manders farm doesn't even happen until the first half is done. It's past the first half. And so the second half of the story feels rushed. Yes. It feels like you suddenly have to cover a lot of ground in a little time. And even like her big final massacre at the end is only like three, four pages. And it's like, you know, that's going to end up being 10 minutes on screen. And yet mm-hmm. it's been so compressed on the page that I can see why. Anyways, I forgot to mention before, the reason why John was ultimately let go was budget. There were disagreements over the budget. And especially after the thing, they wanted to cut the budget and he refused to cut the budget. So that's why they let him go. I can see why it would be hard to really give a sense of what the budget's going to be when you're breezing through so much of it so fast and you have such a drawn-out opening sequence of just little moments. Yeah, I definitely think what is the last half of the book and the original movie, Mm -hmm. the whole sequence at the shop compound in Virginia, I think in this... That's like 30 pages. ...is terribly, terribly wounded. I don't think it works very well. I think the way it's rushed and compressed... It feels like he was writing along and realized the page count he was on and was like, oh, shit, I better wrap this up. Yeah. And just threw everything at it and didn't explain certain things so that there is some stuff from the book that wasn't in the original movie. And they're here, but it's not explained very well, if at all. And I don't know how that would have played for somebody who hadn't read the book. I don't right. know if it would have seemed weird, like especially all caps, the echo, mm-hmm. the snakes and the golf clubs and everything. That's cool that those are details from the book and I get it, but I don't think they're explained very well at all in the script. They just kind of show up and if it's there to illustrate that Andy's push is screwing massively with this guy's head, okay, fine. But will that done well? I think there's an argument to be made that it's not. Yeah. And that's what's interesting is, yes, certain things would only fully make context with the book, but it also departs so much from the book that you're then being like, well, wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) Even more than Cap and the Snakes, because I do think they at least have enough of a gradual build to that that you can kind of piece it together. But even stuff like Pinchot and what all he does, it's different than in the book, but it's still playing off the same area and just kind of comes out of nowhere here. Suddenly he's in his wife's bra. Oh no, he goes to Goldman Sachs and buys his own. (laughs) And again, some of this changes I like. Some of the things that they brought back from the book I like because, you know, the abridgment of the finished film was clumsy, but it still worked. Yeah. I mean, you could tell when they were kind of rolling over certain things and some of the dialogue when they would roll over certain things was a little hackneyed, but it still held together. And this one, it's probably not entirely fair to judge it like how would it be if they filmed this draft because it is a first draft true they would have gone over meeting notes you know obviously they brought in another writer so even the people making this film were like yeah this doesn't quite work but you know just kind of going off of what we got here i still think it would have made a perfectly workable movie but in terms of as an adaptation i do think it's weakening things and going back to the charlie character what's also interesting is the age jumps Because when she is first on the run with her father and, you know, they're doing the hotels, they're doing the money at the airport, she is a little girl. But then there's like several years that go by. They actually go to another town and settle in. But there's a period when she is a little girl. And then there's a period where it's suddenly she's almost adolescent, almost like 11 or 12. They don't really specify her age, but they do say the jump in years. 
her and her father have settled into another town under assumed names. He's got his self-help guru thing going on from the books. And it's like suddenly she's older. And I don't necessarily mind a Charlie that's older. But I'm almost wondering if the way they've minimized Charlie and linearized it is they were trying to wiggle around having to deal with child actors. Could be. If I'm remembering correctly, that stuff happens before the Manders farm. It's after he saves her at the rest stop. That's right. And then it jumps. And then it jumps and she calls him from school. Yes. And tells him they're coming. He's at his self-help office. And you get the sense that they have been successfully under the radar for a couple of years or whatever. Yeah. And then they're on the run and it ends at the Manders farm and then they go to Woodstock for whatever reason. I was weird as they never clearly explain her age. So obviously they were still intending yeah. to keep some loose open variance there in terms of whatever actor they could find. But it almost feels like they're just kind of worried about having to work with the child actors. So let's minimize <laughs> their role in the first half and then jump to a slightly older actress in the later half. Yeah. And again, I think that is a mistake. And, you know, I mean, we talked about Drew. Uh, you know, yeah, there's some you know, moments where as a child actress, she's just not fully pulling it off. But I think still having that consistency of character and there's plenty of the performance that she is still pulling off, I think, still ultimately worked in the end. Oh, definitely. I think in the overall, she's great, you know, especially considering that she is a child actress and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But keeping it with her the whole time, it allows the audience to do that oh so important of things, which is to care about her, to relate mm -hmm. to this kid. If they had done this movie from this script and you had 20 minutes of one actress and then the last 45 minutes of it with a different child actor, I think it would be harder for an audience to get that connection and that level of relatability. Yeah. I think if we're going to restructure it a little bit, I think it would be fascinating. It's happening on the run. That's when he has to break the news to her that her mom's dead. And that's when we have the flashback to him finding the mom. And then we start to get other flashbacks to him pushing. And then it's like gradually almost do like a reverse chronology of gradually the backstory is being unfolded to her that she doesn't know about the Lot 6 experiments. And that's something she finds out over the course of the movie. I think that would work. Yeah, you could still slip in all those little moments of backstory while still having her right from the beginning open with them on the run. And that's what's kind of interesting because the thing which John and Bill did opened on the run, the helicopter. We don't know the backstory of this helicopter. We only find that out over time. You know, it's literally on the run, instantly drops the situation in our lead character's laps, and we only gradually piece together what happened over time. And I think that makes it more involving for the audience. Yeah. Unless it could just be the linearization to something that they were just like, put it all linear for the first draft, and then we'll figure out how we want to restructure it in terms of like, what do we break up as flashbacks and what do we put where? It would be interesting to find out what their actual plan. And again, how much is the Bill Phillips draft going to be like this, or is it going to go back to the books? We'll find out soon. I'm really curious to see that. <laughs> Can you see why, like a year and a half ago, when I first got this script, I was like, you know, it's a pretty straightforward book, a pretty straightforward story. How much could he have really changed? Maybe I'll just do like a light article on it or something. And then I read this draft. I'm like, oh, I got to talk about this at some point. <laughs> Yeah, they definitely do some changes. Yeah. And not just Mr. Oh, sorry, Master Rainbird. Actually, let's go ahead and dive to Rainbird, where Rainbird has been completely removed and the character of Wanless has been removed. We still have Cap. We still have the guy who runs the shop. We still have Dr. Pinchot, one of the main scientists. And we still have some of the regular hitmen like OJ and I think Baxter and all that <laughs> stuff. We have this one new character of, I think it was Roberta Rav? Roberta? Yeah. As a female doctor. Yeah, Roberta Rav, and it's R-A-H-V. 
I don't know why they didn't call her Dr. Chainbird or something. I just, yeah. I, I, uh, her name is Lane Baird. Lane Baird. <laughs> she is the main scientist of the Lot 6 program. She's kind of stuck in a constant feud with Cap in terms of, we need to continue with this. No, we don't. We need to continue. No, we don't. When Charlie ultimately gets captured by the shop, Rav is the one who tries to bond with and befriend Charlie as a kind of surrogate mother figure. So they do kind of try to bring in that element to Rainbird. I don't think it's terrible, but I don't think they pull it off. I don't think it works at all. Suddenly, she's just trying to be nice to Charlie, and it just doesn't seem like she's even doing that great of a job. And there's a line in the script somewhere, can she believe she has a friend or something like that? And I was like, oh, God. I don't think it's executed well at all. It seems very perfunctory. And having it be a composite of both Wanless and Rainbird together, removing all of Rainbird's personal intent towards Charlie as this special child and replacing it with the detachment of a scientist. Who just wants to autopsy her. Yeah. You know, and that's another thing I think is crucially, crucially damaged by compositing the two characters together. At least with Rainbird, as sick and twisted and fucked up as it is, you understood it was leading to a point for him where after he played all the games and did all this stuff and made the people at the shop happy and got her to do the tests, at the end he would get to kill her and possibly kill himself, and that would be this thing he was working towards. Mm -hmm. And with Rob, the character itself, she's more or less just the generic, stereotypical mad scientist who has these evil, nefarious intentions toward this little girl and of course in a story sense that's going to work in the way that you don't want her to get what she wants you want charlie to be safe and you're like no you're not going to hurt her and obviously that instinct is going to kick in and you're not going to want to see her be successful but it's really like okay and not that the hitman with nefarious intent in a weird end game is all that much more creative but mm-hmm. the way the king portrayed him was interesting enough to overcome any stereotypical bullshit that might come out of that character Whereas the treatment of Rob in this is very much just kind of like, oh, she's just the evil scientist. She doesn't even have anything special planned near the end of that whole climax that is so rushed. Suddenly it just comes out. Oh, and by the way, they intend to do one more test and then she's going to dissect her and check out the pituitary gland. And it's like, okay, it's like that. Okay, so yeah, there's a bit of urgency there, of course. But that, to me, is another part of the problem with the climax, with the way that it seems like he realized he got to the end, and suddenly everything has to happen now so I can wrap this shit up. And he just kind of threw it up on the page, like, and it's all there. I did like the stuff you had mentioned earlier. You had said that the fire sequences, the action moments where the fire is deployed, I do think that that was done well. Yeah. Probably what I think worked best about the climax. But Rav, as a replacement for Rainbird, I think it's just a huge step back. And I think it also damages the character of Charlie because part of what is so appealing about Charlie and part of what gets an audience, at least me as an audience, on her side and rooting for her is her being so insightful and Mm -hmm. smart. And she does get tricked by Rainbird, but he does it very well. Whereas Dr. Rav in this, it's kind of lazy. 
I don't think it reflects well on Charlie that Charlie would even remotely fall for that. You know what I mean? It lessens her intelligence. It lessens her ability to make good decisions as a protagonist that you want to root for. It fucks with her agency. I just don't think it works. Right. In the original novel, yes, she did get the note that was outing Rainbird to her, but she was already figuring it out for herself with the dreams and catching him smile at one time. Exactly. The thing I'll say is I understand the impulse to step away from Rainbird, not just because it's a character that can be very easy to do in a stereotypical fashion. It's a very difficult character to figure out how to do right when you're doing an adaptation. And from the finished film, they did not do it right. <laughs> My thing is, if you actually just step back and look at it, this is a story of Charlie versus the shop. Rainbird does take over the second half and makes it more about him, even in the book. In the book, it still works because he's still a compelling enough character study. But stepping back and actually looking at the structure of the story, he really does take over a lot of the story and it stops being about Charlie versus the shop. I can understand when you're doing an adaptation to be wary of doing that when you need to strip the story down to its basics and the basics are still always going to be Charlie versus the shop. I don't think they did it successfully here, but I kind of understand where they're coming from, but I don't think they did it the right way. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. I agree that the essential thrust in every important way, when you really get down to it, is Charlie versus the shop. I agree. But I also think that Rainbird, even having his own agenda and going against the people he works for in a lot of ways, he still represents the shop. He's the one that gets her to do the tests they want her to do. Yes, but he also becomes an antagonist to the shop, so the story becomes this odd triangle. That's true, but if you want to streamline the story, you could make it more so that they were on the same page. If what you want is to simplify the adaptation, you could either do away with that aspect of it entirely, that they are all on the same page and they understand what he wants out of her when it's all over and they're cool, and he is completely cool with helping them achieve those ends because they are going to let him have what he wants when it's all said and done. But I think to simply remove one of the most interesting characters mm -hmm. from the story, who I think is a much better representation of a villain in terms of representing the shop and, quote unquote, the bad guys in the story, simply removing him from the story in the service of replacing him with the very stereotypical mad scientist is just a bit too lazy for me personally. I do also understand the compulsion to do that, especially when the story is getting to that point and the whole second half is really going to get down to the brass tacks of Charlie versus the shop. I do get the compulsion. I do understand why they did it, but simply removing it because it's going to be harder to figure out a way to make it play. I would prefer they hadn't done that. I can't be on board with it. And I do agree with your point that yeah, he is the most compelling character. And I think the problem isn't so much that they decided to make a change, but they had nothing compelling to replace him with. Exactly. Because then all you have is Rob and Cap, and it's the typical evil scientist, evil bureaucrat. Mm -hmm. And Rainbird was such an entirely different character unto himself I think you would have to remove some of that to make an adaptation properly work. Like, I don't know that you need his whole, I want to kill her and look her in the eye and take her power machination, or even him manipulating the shop, but you have to have him be an antagonist to Charlie who gets in her graces and gets her to use her powers for the shop. 
that is essential. They try to do that with the Rav character, but the other thing is, you never have an icebreaker between Rav and Charlie. It just kind of happens. <laughs> Whereas Rainbird tried like hell, and it wasn't until you had that power out that he was finally able to really find a way to connect with Charlie. Rav never finds that connection, and so their relationship doesn't really feel earned. No. I mean, if you want to just have it be, she befriends the guy in the stables who takes care of the horses, and he's the one who gradually talks her into that, and then he's revealed to actually be a part of the shop who was pressuring her to do this. Yeah, something. If you want to still capture that aspect of Rainbird, there's ways you can do it in small ways, but you would still lose a compelling character. Cap represents the evil government. He's the bureaucrat in charge. She's just the evil scientist, and she's the part of the testing side of it who's interested for what this could mean for America and all that shit. Yeah. But she doesn't seem to have any... There's no masterminding of anything going on there. She's not even really a good villain. She's just not. She's boring. All she wants is to do another round of Lot 6 trials. Yeah, that's it. And also, like you said, it just sort of happens, this pseudo-relationship between her and Charlie. So it's presented more or less as Charlie is kidnapped by these mean government people who she knows are the ones that killed her mommy and took her daddy from her. But one of them is kind of nice to her, so Charlie's like, okay. Yeah, and especially when we're making an older Charlie, that doesn't quite work. No, I don't think it plays well at all. If they had shown, even in a very brief segment of a scene earlier on between her and Cap and showed that Dr. Rob had a little bit more going on in terms of a plan, just illustrated her as someone who was plotting and planning and seemed capable of gaining Charlie's trust, even though she wasn't remotely worthy of it and was prepared to be that manipulative down the line. Then later hammered that a little bit in the scenes with Charlie and did a little bit more work. You wouldn't need five pages of it, no. but maybe one page added to one of those early scenes of her with Charlie, where you saw her throwing that down, actually slowly getting the hooks in and just a little bit more work, just a little bit. It would not have been that hard and it would have made a lot of difference. Again, I think this goes back to one of the major problems of this script is that the first half is so overdeveloped that the second half is underdeveloped. The second half needs more room to breathe. It needs more room to let things build to where they are ultimately going, and they don't have room to do that because they spend so much time lingering in the first half. Mm -hmm. There is a conflict between Cap and Rav, but it's never played up to the point of the conflict between Rainbird and Cap. Why is Rob's ultimate goal to autopsy Charlie instead of, look at these amazing things she can do. We can start this up and get other people who can do these amazing things. And the other people who are opposing her are just like, look at these terrible things she can do. Why would we want to create more people who can do these terrible things? It shouldn't be that she is wanting to understand how Charlie works. She just wants to create more powers. She is drawn by the wonder, and they are afraid of the terror of this. That is a great central conflict, but they never really play that up. No, and some of it was Cap discussing letting some of it out of the bag, like that they've seen like she could be a nuclear mushroom cloud or whatever. And they haven't really gone into that. The way that Wanless, through these doomsday scenarios at Cap, in this script, it's kind of like, well, you assume they discussed it, but mainly off screen. Well, no, there are discussions of it, but it's just not coming with the same impact. And it gets more Cap is the one who's hesitant, and Rob is the one who wants to keep pushing forward. Indeed, but they gloss over it to a degree that 
the way it read to me was these are just two work associates who have a disagreement on how to go about the project. It's not a fundamental conflict. And again, it's like, okay, if we're going to go this route, she wants to actually help Charlie escape. She doesn't want Charlie to be destroyed by the government that's terrified of her because she wants more Charlies. You know, even if you want to have the whole bit of, well, she can't get the lot six materials, but she can extract the lot six from Charlie. You know, it's like, okay, but you know, have it be that her attempt to take Charlie ends up overlapping with Andy's attempt to escape and Charlie flipping out when she finds out who Rob really is. And then that all leads to the climax exploding. You know, you could do something there. But again, they just haven't figured out how to do it without Rainbird. And yet they're still trying to do it without Rainbird. <laughs> yeah. They don't know how they're going to do it, and they definitely don't pull it off, but they know they want to do it without Rainbird. So we'll just yeah. figure it out as we go, I guess. But them seeming like they're just co-workers, one of them should actively hate the other or be trying to undercut the other, or one of them should be afraid of the other, or both. Yeah. It should be some kind of conflict, as you said. And there is none. It's just kind of there. That could be part of the problem with the whole last half of it. Yeah, it... <sighs> Reading that was not confusing. It just seemed like it's all going so fast. And I really kept questioning someone who hadn't read the book and was not familiar with the source material at all. Would that play for them or would it feel as a viewer the way it felt as a reader who was familiar with the source material? That they are literally racing as fast as they can to wrap it all up, to get to where even people who don't know the story, you know it's got to end with some big climax. All the way down to Andy's entire arc with his drugs. I mean, he's still being dosed most of the time. But suddenly he can just push. Was he hiding it the whole time? What was going yes. on there? No, I actually like that. I like that they just had that. You think that he's just fully given into the drugs and then he reveals that no, he's been biding his time. I actually like that. But again, it spent so much of the first half of the film making him your lead character that again, he's been so significantly cut down in the second half. I don't think you need everything that was in the book and even in the movie. I don't mind there being that sudden reveal. But again, you spent so much time building up a character to then only just kind of bury them. I agree with that, but I was confused as to whether or not he actually was biding his time or if he was just able to kick the effects off screen. Because you know what it is in the book. I don't think they did a good enough job illustrating that in the script. I do. Because after he has his meeting with Cap, we see him go back to his quarters and does his usual thing of hiding the pills in his food that he drops on the garbage disposal. That he scrapes off, yeah. It's like that's not his first time doing this. I think that comes across clearly enough. But I like the psych out of the story through its montage. It's showing Charlie giving in to the shop, giving in to letting loose with her powers and all the rewards that she's getting, while contrasting that with how he is just completely let himself go, give in to the drugs, give in to the booze, yelling at the cameras for watching him jerk off. His place <laughs> is a mess. It's showing that she is giving in and flourishing, and he has just fallen into nothing. Even as it's ultimately leading to the point, I want to see my father. To then have that reveal, that sudden twist. He has a plan. He's been faking it out. I don't know if he's been doing it the whole time or not, but at the point when he has that meeting with Cap, he's back up to speed. He's rested. He's waited. He's got his powers. And he has a plan. I like that sudden reveal. 
I like it as a reveal, but I do think it's harmed a bit the way they did take so much emphasis off of him in that second half. That these beats that we are getting, while they're satisfying, like, yeah, get him, Andy. It's a cool reversal in that respect, surely. But the way everything is so compressed, and again, it wouldn't have to be pages and pages, but just a little bit more with him, just a little bit, I think would have brought the audience along. Not that surprises aren't good. Having him pop up and, yeah, I'm actually with motherfuckers. I'm completely okay. I've got a plan. I'm good to go. But for me personally, it did not seem as effective. It just kind of was like, oh, and drop. And again, I understand it from the structure of the two parents, first act, second act, parent and child, third act, child having to now come into her own. A lot of us, as we're growing up, we end up falling in with the wrong crowd. We give into the system. We get manipulated. We get screwed over. And then we want to burn it all down when we find out that we're wrong. (laughs) So I kind of understand that as she's separated from her parents and has to do things on her own, she ends up getting manipulated. She ends up giving into the system. And then it ending with her wanting to burn it all to the ground, which she's literally capable of doing. Honestly, if we're doing this, what if he had just died in the middle? Well, yeah. What if he had gotten killed at the Manders farm? And then she ends up on her own. She ends up getting caught. She ends up getting in the worst place. She has no one. She has no support. And thus she ends up being easily swayed by this character who is seemingly a friend who wants to help and ends up getting caught in the whole machinations between Cap and whoever you have opposed to Cap and realizing, shit, I buddied up with the wrong person. Burn it all. You know, you don't even need Andy in the second half of this story. I think that would work. Again, it would be a departure from the book, but I think as a story, it'd still work. Oh, yeah, it would definitely play. I think something you had said earlier threw it into relief for me in terms of understanding why I don't think this completely works. It's all about balance for me, and I don't think it's balanced well enough. The first half doesn't have enough Charlie, and I don't think the second half has enough Andy. I don't think the second half has enough of anyone who isn't Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I think if it was more balanced, I think it would play better overall and be more satisfying. I just think as it's presented, we can only absorb this as a first draft. So we have to take that into account. In this first draft, I think that's something that I would hope that someone would say, we need to bolster this and we need to fix that. And I think balance in terms of the two halves would be very essential. Yeah. So I think getting down into some of the more smaller changes, aspects that they brought back from the book include Dr. Pinchot responding to his push by basically locking himself up in his home and going to drag. He doesn't kill himself with the garbage disposal. Then stuff like Andy using his push powers to create a self-help business, extra details like him finding the bloody handprint at the school that reminds him that, okay, this did all happen. I did see what I knew happened. Little things like that are snuck back in. One thing I do like is the expanding of the Lot 6 night how you have all these different kinds of powers going on. You know, it's not just they have their powers and someone claws their eyes out. The McGee parents not only have their psychic connection leading up to them literally fucking psychically. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, you have like other people in the room who are having visions of Hell's Angels driving through. You have the guy who's literally levitating off the bed. Yeah. You have the character who's literally flickering in and out of visibility. And we find out that some of these people are still around in the late. We, we don't see them, but we hear mention that some of them are still around. They're all incurably insane. And like the guy who was levitating, we see jump off a tower at some point. Yeah. I kind of like expanding just seeing how wild that night got. 
Yeah, that would have made for a pretty cool special effects sequence and, and a, definitely a way to grab the attention of the audience that early on. And like you said, the adding of things that weren't necessarily in the book, like the dude levitating off the bed and then later climbing up the tower, yeah. singing to himself and then launching and taking a header. None of that I don't think is bad. I think that's interesting and really set the scene in terms of what it is they're doing to people. I just so love that visual, though, of them looking over to see the person who's sleeping and all their various limbs at like different times are like flickering between transparent, translucent and opaque. (laughs) And then even there's the moment from the book where he realizes that one of the orderlies is a killer and rapist because that's one of the shop goons. God, you know what I would almost love to see is a movie just called Lot 6. And the entire movie is just that one night. That would be pretty crazy. You could turn that into a really great horror movie. That would be something. Whether you're using it to set up the McGee's or not, even just separating it from Firestarter, making its own incident. They sign up for a drug trial. It turns out to be some kind of LSD. And then it gets worse. (laughs) I would love to see that 80-minute indie horror movie. That would be a trip. Yeah. The Stanford Prison Experiment on drugs. Yeah. You know, and gradually realizing who these terrible people are around you as you're suddenly able to read their minds and trying to escape from it while still tripping. Yeah. I did like that Ralph Baxter moment a lot because they are having that psychic connection in the moment. I think that would have played really well when he says his name. That's Ralph Baxter. He's killed three women and she kind of finishes it for him. And one of them dead. That was creepy and straight out of the book. I mean, not the conversation. That was something Andy realized in his head. But I do believe that they did have her finish part of that thought, too, in the book. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty interesting. Honestly, you know, if we do want to restructure this something more linear, you could do a 10 minute at the beginning of the movie where it's the lot six night. And then you cut straight from that to 10 years later, he's on the run with his daughter. And then gradually fill in the blanks of what happened between that. You could still make that work. I agree. I think that would be cool. Because I don't know that you could play out that Lot 6 night as expansively as you do here if you just made it a flashback. No, and especially not because, I mean, they do go a bit deeper into detail down to a montage of the people they're accepting and rejecting for the trial. Oh, yeah. The whole interview montage. Yeah. Yeah. And I was curious about that. I found it interesting that he did seem to play up the whole era a bit more, down to the point where when they eventually get caught after the Manders farm, it's at a cabin up near Woodstock. Mm -hmm. And he mentions to Charlie, your mom and I went to a concert here years ago. Yeah, yeah. Lancaster seemed like he was really aiming towards hammering that button of the times and the whole hippie free love drug era thing coming back to bite you in the ass to the point of making odd little connections like that did not exist in the novel and don't have anything to do with the story proper they're not necessary right but he changed it just to kind of do it and that's interesting that's an interesting angle to take well and it's charlie is literally the product of people of that generation (laughs) her parents generation caused this entire situation and now won't let it go you know, I can understand that thematically. You know, I mean, especially in the modern day where, you know, the whole millennials versus baby boomer type <laughs> war that's going on is, you know, I can understand actually painting that of, we just want to move on with our lives and the generation of the past won't let us go. But the actual literal drug love child won't let you. I mean, we can go ahead and bring up the Manders on that too, where they make the Manders instead of, you know, the old folksy farm type, he's an aging hippie draft dodger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who spent some time in Canada to escape Vietnam and came back home and is now working on the farm. He's kind of a dude, man. Yo, you know, that kind of thing. 
interesting change. And of course, then they actually end up killing him. And he never comes back and plays a part in the rest of the story, like he does in the book or the other movie. Yeah, neither does she. No. Which I found interesting, because he gets shot, and when I realized that, oh, they'd actually killed him, I thought, okay, well, that's going to make the climax a bit different. But it didn't, because that was it. It didn't at all. (laughs) No, right. It's just, oh, he's dead, and she's there, and when they leave them, that's where we leave them. That's the last they're in the story. I'll be honest, even in the book and the original movie, I didn't really need that epilogue. I don't mind the story ending with Charlie just walking away from the apocalypse that she's reigned on the complex and where she ends up tomorrow is going to be kind of up in the air and unknown. Yeah, just heading down the highway, David Banner style. Though I love that in this one, the entire climax and her leaving at the end, she's on Necromancer. I did think her being on the horse was pretty cool. That was cool. Definitely. That's like, we're going to minimize this because we don't like child actors. So we're going to spend the last few weeks of the movie with a child on a horse. That'll be easy to film. (laughs) They probably would have hired Laura Dash. Very famous small person who would very often double for children. (laughs) Those are the type of changes that I don't mind because I don't know that they particularly add anything. But I also don't think they particularly detract anything. No. No, I don't think they added anything to the story. But neither did I think that it weakened it in some kind of fatal way. And even with the Manders' death, I think you still have the wife turning on Charlie. You never have them reconcile that later on. But you also have the entire destruction of the Manders' farm to fire, like the book, where they lose the entire farm because Charlie didn't have control over her power at the time. And I believe that's something that's not in the movie. No. He's telling her to stop, and she just calmly says, I can't. Right. They minimized it, too. It's where he's starting to sweat because she's putting the fire in him, and she turns and puts it in the water. Yeah. But yeah, she never burns down the farm in the film adaptation. But in the book, I remember she did. And then when she came back later, they rebuilt it with insurance money. Yeah. And she definitely doesn't explode any chickens. Right. And I didn't mind that because, again, it's like showing an early sign of how powerful she is, but she can't control it. And then I love how through the shop trials, she's gradually learning how to control it. And then in the third act, she's like, you know, fuck control. (laughs) Everything burns. It feels so good to just let it go. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's a wonderful aspect of the book, the hubris of the shop. And they don't take into account that they are taking this weapon and sharpening it to a very fine point. Whereas in this, it doesn't feel that strong, that that is ultimately leading to their own destruction. I do love the way the Manders scene is done. I think the scenes where they're testing her powers are just as fine here as they are in the book. But again, the big final onslaught is only three pages. That's your entire last 20 minutes of your movie. And it's kind of that old screenplay thing of, you know, there's a page for every minute. That's why a guy will say, and the army approaches. <laughs> and that's basically supposed to be like three minutes of film that you did in one sentence. It's like, you can see how this would play out as like 10, 15 minutes, but it's already a 130 some page script. So it's like, it blew out to like two and a half hours, which nowadays that would be normal. But at this time, when you still needed to play things for the TV cut, you know, you wanted something around 90 to 100 minutes. So I don't know how that would have worked. That's it. The way Al Stein, the shop agent at the Manders Farm, dies <laughs> in this script. I have the description. Stein's clothes disintegrate. His skin expands like a giant membranous bubble. He turns into a total body blister. He pops, spewing body fluids like a broken water balloon. A dehydrated skeleton remains. Mayo, covered with Stein's liquids, recoils. It's like, holy fuck. <laughs> <laughs> 
He doesn't just burst into flames. She literally cooks his skeleton from the inside, causing his entire body to inflate into a boil and pop. Yeah, it's like she microwaved him in the open. It's certainly very visual and visceral. And I did like that. And I did kind of go, eww, when I was reading it. This is definitely the same guy who scripted the creature scenes in The Thing. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) And it also reminded me a bit of the visual of Wind from Big Trouble in Little China when he does his big inflation. (laughs) I don't think he's going to (laughs) stop. Yeah. Oh, man. I don't know if Rob Bottin was involved in this, but if he was, I would love to have seen how he would have done that. Oh, well, can you imagine? Oh. Probably would have involved melting plastic and everyone getting toxic poisoning, but (laughs) (laughs) we'd still appreciate it years later. Oh, definitely. People would be holding those up as excellent practical effects. <laughs> Are there any other like particular moments that leapt out to you that you thought were really nicely done in the script that we didn't get in the finished film? Some of the character moments between Andy and Charlie. There mm-hmm. was one in the cabin that I quite liked where he's dancing and she shows him a new dance. Nobody dances like that anymore. Yeah, it's a couple of sentences, but on screen it could last for 30 seconds to a minute yeah. and be a very cute and heartwarming scene. Yeah. of a father and a daughter literally just being a family for a moment. Conversely, I will point out one thing I was not such a big fan of, and it's a very small thing. It's a very small moment, but it's during that whole opening act, Vicky is being kind of mean yeah. to Charlie. Calls are creepy and stuff, and I don't know why that was added. I understand the notion to want to make them a little bit afraid of her and what she can do that they don't understand yet, and they don't know exactly what she's capable of, and so they're a little bit hesitant and a little bit on their heels about but making vicky outright unlikable right i don't think that's good at all it's another thing where it's like i understand where the writing is coming from it's at one of those points where you know parents just get so frustrated of kids being on them 24 (laughs) 7 definitely that you have a moment where you snap and you yell at them this has the added consequence but she'll set your hands on fire (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think it was written that well. And I think the actual wording and the dialogue was not particularly well done. What I do love about that opening stuff is you get that great montage of the baby starts crying. Well, it's not time for its bottle yet. Just just let her cry. Then she sets the bed on fire. Yeah. You know, and they're like, what the hell is that? And then it's like other things start to catch on fire. And it's like, as we keep cutting back into the house, you know, they have a fire extinguisher here. Now they have two fire extinguishers. (laughs) Now they got a fire extinguisher in every room and multiple smoke detectors and now they have a fire hose installed in the wall yeah, a full-on professionally installed fire hose. I mean, I could understand if you did want to build up that moment that she's so tired of being terrified and on her toes that it just kind of all comes pouring out of her at one moment and that results on her getting set on fire. And then that further then results on Andy having to do that parental thing that he did in the books of having to shame Charlie into not wanting to use her powers. I can understand the progression there, but again, that would actually add more to the script and we already have a bulky first half as it is. Yeah, because I think in order to not harm Vicky's character in terms of being a likable character that you are upset about when she is murdered, to have her speak to her daughter that way, and again, like you said, understandable in terms of both being scared and being tired as a regular parent would be. If they had laid a little groundwork previously in terms of you see how Vicky got to this point and she just kind of snaps and says some ugly things in this moment and that results in her hands going up in yeah. flames. 
But reading it the way it is done in this first draft, it just happens and you're like, whoa, what's up? You're kind of being a little harsh there. Yeah, it could have been written a lot better without the name calling. Yeah, that really turned me off. I was reading it and I was like, oh, I don't like that at all. Yeah, that reads like Bad News Bears dialogue. (laughs) Well, one particular moment that leaps out that I actually really enjoy is the first hotel that they have to stop in after they go on the run and... I do like that we go back to the rest stop with you know him making the one agent go blind and making one fall asleep and that we again actually get from the book. We find out that the one guy, he maybe wakes up for one hour a day, but otherwise still sleeps or, you know, that one $500 bill is still flickering. You can still see a visible mm-hmm. flicker. I like those aspects are back in here. But I love that you have the added scene of when they first settle down in their first hotel room on this run, when he has to tell Charlie that her mom is dead. He knows it's going to be a bad reaction, so he's like turning on all of the faucets in the bathroom on cold to get the shower running, get the sink running, open up the toilet, just so there's as much water in there as he can. And then he breaks the news to her that her mom is dead, and she pushes her emotions to the bathroom and just basically like instantly just flash melts it. I love that moment. Yeah, I thought that was really well done. And his description of the way that the bathtub is basically heat baked was really good, and it would make a really good visual. Yeah, no, I liked that a lot. I like almost all of the Charlie Andy stuff. Like, I I like the entire sequence in the cabin. And it is interesting that because you don't get the rainbird set up, how it is so sudden that she gets hit with the dart in the neck. True. You don't really know that they have a plan. You know that they're around because of the scene with the postal worker. Yeah. You know, and you have pictures and stuff, but you don't know that they are literally laying out a plan and have this whole thing worked up. When that does happen, it is pretty sudden and shocking, but it is also really compressed as effective as that is as a surprise. That's when it really started to feel, boom, she's darted and boom, they're gone. And now, oh, now three months later, superimposed. It started speeding through the adaptation, whereas in the beginning, it really seemed to take its time. Even with the changes that they made, they were letting certain things breathe in a way. And I understand wanting to accumulate and accelerate to a certain speed to really drag you through in an exciting, involving way through the home stretch. I just think it could have been executed better. This is also where, and again, who knows how this would have been in the finished film, but it kind of reminds me of something we noticed when we were doing the main show, is that some of the strongest John Carpenter stories take place over a very brief amount of time. Yeah. They take place in a day or over a course of a couple of days. I mean, like Big Trouble in Little China, Assault on Precinct 13, The Thing, even Starman, Prince of Darkness, They Live, all take place in a very, very short, brisk amount of time. Or even Escape from New York, you know, where he literally has a ticking clock. Yeah. Halloween, you you have the prologue, and then the remainder of the film is literally over the course of one day. When he has to do stories with a more expansive storyline where, you know, it's covering like months go by or years and stuff like that, those seem to be ones where he always seems to struggle a little bit to convey that. And we notice that especially like Village of the Damned, <laughs> Memoirs of an Invisible Man, where you have a lot of passage of time that he kind of struggles to convey. Or I really like Christine, but one of the things it fails to convey is that that takes place over the course of an entire year. Yeah. The way the film is done, it could take place over the course of a week, even though it literally has captions of the months that are going by. Yeah, it's got the titles of November 12th or whatever. Yeah, I agree. And you could have compressed this entire story to take place over the course of one week. They're on the run. They get to the farm. They go to a cabin. They're surrounded. 
you don't even have to have them spend time at the cabin. That's literally a retreat where they think they've shaken their tail, but they haven't. And then you get to the shop facility and all that goes by. You could literally structure this as seven days over a week. You could. If you wanted to. You could. You don't have to. But I think there are ways the story could have rolled along in a way that would better fit John's style than simply trying to even stretch out time even more than the book did. And even giving us specific dates that the book didn't. Again, like a four or five year jump with Charlie in terms of her age, you know. And I don't think this really needed to be as sprawling as they have it here. No, I don't think it needed to be, and I don't think they handled it as well as they could have, and perhaps compressing it might have made certain things they were trying to do play better on the page and then would have played better for John's strengths. Anything else you want to add on this script? Any other little moments that jump out to you or even broader overall things? Well, overall, like I said, it was an enjoyable enough read, even if I don't think it really is an effective adaptation. I do think, considering the era in which John would have been making it, I think he could have definitely could have shaped it into something that he could have pulled off pretty well to the point where it at least would have been something like a Christine, where it might not have ended up as a top-tier John Carpenter film or a top-tier Stephen King adaptation, but would have been a very enjoyable entry in both of those subgenres. I think it would have been a pretty enjoyable John Carpenter flick, and I think it would have been a pretty enjoyable Stephen King adaptation. But in this first draft, the things that are lost, specifically Rainbird, I think harm it. And I think the imbalance between the two halves, because it doesn't really feel like it has multiple acts. It feels like there's a first part and then there's a second part. And I don't think they're balanced all that great. No. There's definitely good stuff about it. I do like the things that he did choose to keep as details to both really illustrate the story and especially the characters. It's not a crucial detail, but the fact that when we catch up with him later, right before they have to go on the run again, he's doing his self-help business. That's a great little character detail. The certain things he chose to illustrate both the world of the story, the details of the shop, keeping the fact that certain shop agents are actual characters with actual names and aren't just nameless guys. And you get the sense that someone like Norval Bates is a more professional, straightforward kind of operative who's there to do a job as opposed to someone like O.J. Mayo who gets off on the authority and abusing his power and being able to hurt people. I like the way that they got into a fight over that when it came to the mailman. I love that scene. Yeah, where OJ just has no problem just screwing with this mailman and the other guy's like, respect this man. (laughs) Pick that shit up off the ground and give it back to him. This is the guy who works for the U.S. Postal Service. He takes the mail. Respect that. Yes, we're screwing him over because we have to. Don't enjoy it. Exactly, exactly. And those kind of dichotomies, those kind of differences between personalities is something that Stephen King does really well even in a very brief period of time, sketching real little characters that feel more like real people rather than faceless automatons who are just here as, oh, they're just a faceless government entity who's out to get us. No, 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 this guy's, you know, just doing a job. This guy's an asshole who loves his job a bit too much. Yeah. The things he chose to keep like that to illustrate something larger than just going by the numbers. I really liked that. 
So, I mean, yeah, it was an enjoyable enough read, and I do think John, at the height of his powers, his story sense was enough that he wouldn't have just read this script, and obviously he didn't. He did more work on it, but John would not just read a script like this and go, yeah, fuck it, let's shoot it. He would want it to play. He would want it to work. And so I think if he had been able to stay on the project, it definitely would have improved immensely to the point that the end result, I think, Dean Cundy shooting it and probably Botin coming into play with the effects and whatnot. I weep for what might have been. <laughs> yeah, and going back to the thing, I mean, there were earlier writers who did an adaptation that Toby Hooper was going to do, but that's a completely separate thing. While John was on the thing, Lancaster was the only writer that he was working with. We have two drafts of the script for the thing. We have Bill's second draft, which is the more widely available one. And then we have the final shooting script, which is pretty much identical to the actual final shot film. Just through working the story over with John, only about 60 to 70% of that second draft actually made it to screen. Because while he had the characters down, there's a lot of dialogue that got changed and a lot of that got workshopped with the actors. All of the creature effects scenes, he wrote very vivid, detailed scenes, but then Rob Bottin and Mike Plug completely reimagined how the creature worked and how all those transformations would happen. And so basically every creature scene from that second draft that Lancaster wrote were scrapped and new ones were rebuilt. And the entire third act was thrown out and they completely wrote a brand new third act. So I would not be surprised if this would have gone through similar development under John. Because as we know, John is a skilled screenwriter in his own right. Definitely. Even when he isn't the one doing the script, he usually has a lot of impact on the script. And I mean, like even in The Mouth of Madness, that entire ending with the movie theater, that was all John and they threw out the ending that was in the script. There's no doubt in my mind that this script would not have gone to screen in the form that it is now. Yeah, no. That said, I don't think it's a bad script. I think it's a good first draft to get their ideas down in terms of how they wanted to approach an adaptation. I think it's one of those ones where they also would have had a nice clear idea of what they still need to work on. Maybe we need to go further in this other direction, cut this stuff down, build that stuff up. Charlie isn't working. Can we build her character more? Do we need to go back to Rainbird or do we keep building in the direction we're going on? I don't know why Lancaster didn't stay involved. You know, I don't know if they got into disagreements with John, if he got busy with other projects. Again, after the thing, he has no produced screenplays. So I don't know if he continued to write in Hollywood and just nothing ever got made. I literally do not know. But Bill Phillips came in, and Bill Phillips is someone who John collaborated with repeatedly from this point on. So obviously they ended up building a very good working relationship. Mm -hmm. I am genuinely, genuinely curious to see what that Phillips draft is going to be like. And what's interesting is I almost didn't have that. When I first figured out how I wanted to do this podcast discussion, all that was out there was the Lancaster draft. And it's literally only two months ago that the Phillips draft finally surfaced. <laughs> Well, timing is everything. So I think we'll just go ahead and we'll break here, and then we'll be back for our third and final segment. Sounds good to me, man. And we are back for the third and final segment of this Genocrypha episode on Firestarter. AJ is with me once again. How you doing, guys? And what we read here is the second, well, I don't know if it was like the official second draft, but we have the second writer who was involved in John Carpenter's version of Firestarter. We have a draft by Bill Phillips. For those who don't know, we've mentioned him previously on Masters of Carpentry. He was the adapter who worked on Christine. He co-wrote El Diablo with John Carpenter and Tommy Lee Wallace. 
I'll probably get to at some point, I have a version of Creature from the Black Lagoon that he wrote that John was going to direct. And I also found, I also found another script that he wrote in the 80s that John almost directed after Firestarter fell apart. It's called The Sea Devils. Bill Phillips, for those who don't know, he also wrote a ton of TV movies. He did a bunch of the Jack Reed movies, did TV movies like Voice from the Grave and The Beans of Egypt, Maine. (laughs) Physical Evidence, one of the films directed by Michael Crichton that wasn't written by Michael Crichton. That is rare. And then also wrote and directed a single film called There Goes the Neighborhood, which is not one I'm familiar with. I think that's got Jeff Daniels and Catherine O'Hara in it. Right. Yeah, that felt very similar to Burbs and Madhouse. This draft was by Bill Phillips, and I found a really nice chunk of quotes from John in an old Starlog interview about what happened with this film, but I'll save those for the end. In our last segment, we talked about Bill Lancaster's draft of Firestar. Very divergent, very different draft, and this is definitely a rewrite building on that draft. And before getting into any specifics, just kind of in general in summation, did you like this script better than you did the Lancaster draft? For me, definitely. I liked it better and I felt it was an improvement. As you said, you could tell he was working from that original Lancaster draft, but I like the directions he took in. I like what he compressed. I like the directions he decided to go with this one, what he decided to firm up, where he wanted to play up to the strengths of what he felt would have been inherent in Lancaster's first draft. I think it's pretty good. It played much better for me than Lancaster's did. When I finished reading it, all I could think was, I would really like to see what movie John Carpenter would have made from this. I really wish I could have seen it. What's odd is for like the first hundred pages, I actually preferred the Lancaster draft. I think it got too cluttered with how many ideas it brought to the table, but I thought some of them were really interesting. This one, it cut some of the things that I really enjoyed and still doubled down on pacing issues that I had. And yet, the final third, I thought was really impressive, and I thought did a better job of pulling together a lot of the new elements that Lancaster had added, and really brought it to a rousing climax that Lancaster hadn't cracked how to do. It's an interesting draft. I don't think either draft are one that I'm fully satisfied with, but I could still see both of them being made into a very impressive film by John. Oh, yeah. Especially with the talent that he had involved. And as we mentioned before, Dean Gundy was going to work on this with him. I'm sure Joe Alves was probably going to work on it with him, you know. It would be <laughs> cool if, God, imagine Rob Bottin doing some of the effects in this one. It would be the fire melts and so, oh my God, you can't even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Again, like the Lancaster draft, this is very much a restructuring of the story in a chronological format. Like the entire first act, again, you know, we got the Lot 6 experiment, the blooming relationship between Andy and Vicky, the birth of Charlie, that gradual realization of the powers that she has. And I know, Albert, we had our criticisms about the decision to go with the chronological structure in the last draft. Do you think it worked better in this one? I do. It felt like it moved better in the early going. It just seemed to flow a little more effectively. It's definitely hitting much of the same beats. It removes some of the scenes that are in the opening up through Andy and Vicky getting together through the trials and everything. It removes some of the littler moments of detail or character or what have you. In some cases, replaces them with others here. But it just seemed to move along on the tracks a lot smoother. 
that was still dealing in the same things that Lancaster was in terms of the time and the place. But Lancaster seemed to want to really hammer that home a little heavier than Phillips did, especially the way that Lancaster had turned Irv Manders into kind of a hippie. That played into something that I was feeling in the beginning of his script. It was very much about the peace and love of that era, juxtaposed against what the government was beginning to do, you know, the MK Ultra and all those trials and all this sort of thing. It felt like he was pitting those against each other, and it didn't really lead anywhere very interesting to me, but he played that up. At least that's how I felt it. And Phillips is doing that in terms of the place and time. He's not running away from it, and he's not completely undoing what Lancaster did with that. But it didn't seem to be something he was trying to make a statement about, where sometimes I felt like Lancaster was trying to say something, but I couldn't figure out what. I think there's definitely a much more nuanced way in which it's layered in here. Especially because you know, this opens very similarly with the whole interview process of all the college students, mm-hmm. and it really gives you a sense of what the various college student mindsets were at the time. But it also opens even before that with this whole montage of just life on a college campus, and it's very much the peace and love protest movement generation that is very much of the mindset, we just brought the system down, and now the system is basically snaking in and corrupting them again from this new track. Very true. The entire story is very much the system that wants to use the people and the people who just want to live their lives. I think that's there. And I think that's a very interesting thing. But yeah, again, it's like, The direction that the story ultimately goes near the end doesn't really continue to play to that. That's more just scenic dressing for the buildup. Yeah, the setting the scene. I do think one of the things that Phillips does really well is he's very good at human moments. Very. And I think character interactions. Honestly, that's something that I thought he brought to Christine very well, too, is just the building of the romances, the way the people behave. Well, I just thought in terms of what you're saying there with the character moments, They don't take up a lot of time necessarily. They're just there for character and the way that these people relate to each other or how they feel. Something as simple as the way Andy, just to fuck with his daughter, calls her Charles Mm -hmm. instead of Charlie. And he knows it kind of pisses her off and annoys her. And that's a very, very relatable thing for people to, yeah, okay, I can feel that. Yeah, my dad did that to me, or I do that to my kid, or I've seen it. Just something little like that. It's tiny, and it's not in the book, and it's not in the movie as shot, and it's not in that previous draft. That's all Phillips right there. Though what I like is that I think is kind of building on that scene in the previous draft that you rightfully criticized, where the mom is berating Charlie in a way that just came off really cruel. And here, I think they found a way to transfer that over to Andy, but make it more playful. Yes. And in a way that ultimately does end up with the two of them are literally just jokingly bantering around like a father and daughter do. Mm-hmm. That's not what leads to violence. Yes, yes. And I think what was cool was what ultimately led to Charlie doing the moment of burst where she sets her mom's hands on fire is instead of the mom constantly berating her, is her overhearing her parents talk about the powers, what Charlie can do, how scared they are of what she can do, how they might need to get her help or send her away. And it's like hearing that causes her to freak out. And it was a very nice way of redoing that. That's probably my favorite scene in the script. In the book and in the movie, and again in that Lancaster draft, it's always understood between Andy and Vicky 
It talks about them giving each other looks or having conversations, but you never get any real illustration of those conversations. You never get a scene where they sit down and, oh my God, that thing that the government did to us back in college, it's been passed on to our kid for sure, and now she can start fires with her fucking mind. What are we going to do? What is going on? What does this mean? And it's just this lovely little moment where they talk it all out. And as you said, it ends badly because that is a really great way to fold that in where it's not Charlie being a brat. It's not Charlie responding to, oh, I didn't get my waffles or whatever the fuck. It's her angry and scared because the last thing she's heard them say is that they might take her away from them. Yeah. And so she kind of ah, freaks out and is mad and is lashing out. And what you said about Andy turning it into a thing where they can play with each other, he completely removed the stuff that Lancaster had added in there that had Vicky being rather unpleasant. Yes. And in this version, Andy loses his temper, not the same way that Vicky did and not to the unpleasant off-putting degree that Lancaster portrayed Vicky as doing in his dress. He loses his temper in a way where he'll like snap but then cool down. Yeah, in kind of an understandable, harried, exhausted, or just a typical parenting kind of, uh, what is this shit now? Yeah. Not meaning to be a dick or not trying to hurt his daughter's feelings or not trying to say something shitty to her. Just kind of a frustration, which I think is very relatable, even if you don't have kids. And the way it gets turned around where he realizes he's getting frustrated and should be a little more patient with her. And he ends up turning it into something else. And she might be a little annoyed because she knows daddy's teasing her. But it never feels mean-spirited and it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like he's hurting the kid, which is important. And the way that they put that on him... Because you also see him continue to build that relationship as the story goes along. Exactly. Exactly. He's the one who gets to be with her. Yeah. You know, Vicky, she goes off stage pretty early in. So to have that moment of anger soon before she does that, it really doesn't help to engender sympathy for her loss. No, no. And does it make us really want to think kindly of her in retrospect in any way? Yeah. Like, oh, you're still upset because you lost your mommy? Well, she was mean to you, so we don't really care. Yeah. Whereas with Andy, we get to see, again, he didn't go to the degrees that she did. It's a very nuanced relationship. Yeah. And it's not something that he needs redemption for. It's not like he did say the same kind of things that Vicky did early on. And then in the next half of the story, we get to see him become a better father or something like that. But no, all it does is just make their relationship a little bit more complex and a little bit more real. Yeah. And what's nice about like those moments when he like gives her shit is she usually gives him shit right back. Exactly. (laughs) And it's a very father-child relationship. And we see the moments of connection and compassion and bonding and all that stuff. So like have like little moments where they get frustrated. It's fine. I really like how Phillips did that in this draft. I really like how he did that. I think he was really smart in what he chose to keep, what he chose to work on, especially in these opening sequences. I agree on those, but some aspects that I think were too much and I think dragged the story on too much were how much he delayed Andy realizing he has powers and they kept having these moments throughout his life where he's unknowingly pushing people. I do like the scene where we actually see the birth of Charlie. And when the doctor holds her up and spanks the newborn infant for the first time, suddenly all the medical equipment in the room explodes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really nice touch. That's actually a really nice trailer moment. And unfortunately, then they carry it on with a story thread of, well, now he's being harassed by collectors because the hospital wants to bill him for all of the medical equipment that exploded. And he ends up going to the hospital and unknowingly pushing the hospital accountant into writing all that off. And then we have a whole other subplot where he's at his school 
Andy keeps hoping to get tenure, but finds out this other professor is going to get tenure because there's this whole political squabble as to why they need to give this other professor tenure. And he's pushing this guy into telling him all this backstory, and we don't need all this. Yeah, that could be cut. That specific scene, I think, is not a big deal. And then there's also a bit where he's trying to learn about spontaneous human combustion and pyrokinesis from this other professor, which it's like it's good information, but it's like getting it from this other professor who's bragging about all these hot college co-eds that he's slept with. And it's like, really? Yeah. (laughs) They're just trying to add color to the scene, and it's just a weird addition that distracts from the moment. Yeah. Because the guy's an asshole. Yeah. And he's only going to be there for that one scene to give exposition and to be sleazy. Right. And that's what he's there for. He does that and then he's gone. Right. And we do have the character of Quincy who was involved in the experiments and was one of Andy's college friends who he does go to later on for additional information. He could have just had another scene with Quincy there to get that info. True. And I do miss a lot of the stuff that Lancaster added to the Lot 6 experiment. It wasn't necessary to the story to see the whole range of superpowers that all these characters were getting, but I liked it. (laughs) And I kind of liked knowing that there was a world where all these other powered college kids were still floating around. The Firestarter Extended Universe, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) It also kind of bothered me that Vicky seemed to really not have any powers, that they took her powers away. Yeah, in the novel, she has powers, but they're very faint, and sometimes yeah. it's not something she's entirely aware that she's doing. You know, it's closing a fridge door, this or that or the other. A vague premonition here and there. And that was something I liked about the Lancaster, was he did actually increase her powers a bit more and make them a little more present. Yeah, and I think the idea there would be that if Charlie is the product of these two people who are now gifted, she will get some of her mom's stuff, some of her dad's stuff. And that's been throughout all the adaptations. She knows they're coming mm-hmm. to the Manders farm. You know, she's got that thing that she got from Vicky. I don't know why Phillips did it. I think probably just to streamline it and make it move faster. Because if you have to deal with Vicky having powers, you have to deal with Vicky having powers. See, but I don't think Phillips's draft really moves any faster. In fact, it actually takes longer to get where it's going. It does take longer to get to the shop compound, which I remember being surprised about. Even just to get to the whole dad and daughter on the run, it takes longer. And part of this is also Phillips is a much denser writer than Lancaster is, just in terms of his actual writing. I think it's like Lancaster was a brisker writer with a lot more going on, and Phillips has a lot less going on, but talks about it more. I'd say that's fair. Even there's like scenes where like a parent is singing a song to the child. Well, let's take half a page to actually show all the lyrics to the song. (laughs) There are ways in which I still have the same pacing problems as the Lancaster one, where there is a misfocus at times. Again, like we talk about all these things that Andy goes through with the development of his powers and all these other subplots that he, it's like they cut things and then add new things that don't really add anything either. It's just a different way of doing it, yeah. I mean, there's even the whole scene early on where we meet Vicky's boyfriend. <sighs> One of his first pushes. And there's the whole confrontation with the boyfriend who Andy then pushes into, why don't you just leave me alone? So he leaves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is amusing, but it's like, again, it's like we have so many Andy pushing people without realizing its sequences that they really needed to tone that down and narrow it down to figure it out. What were the key ones? Well, I would have kept that scene because if you're going to have moments like that where Andy is unwittingly pushing someone, I think that would be a nice little reversal of what most audiences would have expected out of that scene, especially if they don't realize what is going on with Andy is that he's got that specific power. See, but I also just don't like it from a relationship point of view in terms of he got her boyfriend to leave, so then it's like they hook up. There is that weird thing where, I mean, this has always been in the stories that they fell in love 
during the trial. Yeah. But I don't remember that they ever considered that they might have only fallen in love specifically because of the drugs, which they bring up here. Yeah. Which I like them bringing that up, but I still think having the connection of their romance happen during the Lot 6 experiment, I thought was actually handled better by Lancaster in terms of how he just drew that sequence out in terms of like, they're literally mentally making love, you know, and all that stuff. And I thought it really showed they're just having a connection on such a deep level that people don't experience. And you can't walk away from that. Yeah. It's literally a life-changing experience that they went through together. Though I do like them, again, raising that question of later on down the road, was it because we actually fell in love or was it just because of the drugs they gave us? The drugs just brought out what was inside of us. Yeah, I wish they had made that clear. I wish there had been an understanding they reached where maybe if they were going to do that and bring up that question, then that's the answer that they would have arrived at together, saying, no, the drugs just pulled out what was meant to be. We were meant to fall in love and have this beautiful child and all that stuff. I found it interesting that they raised it. I didn't really like it. I thought it was funny, the scene with George, because it's a reversal of what you would expect. This guy threatened him, stay away from my woman. And Andy, well, what if you just leave me alone and fuck off? And then he does. He fucks right off. That would be funny if you played it right. It could be amusing. It could be, but I think it's just an obstacle to them getting together that you don't really need. Oh, no, you don't need it. But again, talking about like picking and choosing in terms of Andy and his developing powers, I don't think he needed to wait till so late in his life for him to realize that he had his powers. And I think you could have actually focused more on him at the university. Not that you needed the whole squabbling politics subplot, but, you know, him dealing with students, him dealing with other professors and stuff. And gradually is like rising up the ranks in an odd way that someone like Quincy can take notice of. If Quincy, if you're going to have him be a bigger character in the movie, have him be a bigger character and recurring character in the earlier side too, where he's starting to realize that more is going on here in terms of Andy. You just think, well, yeah, he was his college friend and he's noticing this. And then that's where you kind of gradually reveal that, no, Quincy still has ties. Yeah. I like a lot of the little moments and ideas in both drafts, but I don't think either draft fully figured out how to properly structure that first half of the script. Pull a little bit more from the Lancaster, really build on a lot of the stuff that Phillips is doing, but really hone and shape it a lot more smoothly than what we have here. I can say that. And by the way, I should mention it. I saw an interview with Bill Phillips where they talked about what actor they actually had in talks to play Andy McGee. Oh, who's that? Richard Dreyfus. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. So this would be 1980s Richard Dreyfus. I think he would have been a good choice for the role. Personally, I think he would have killed it. Andy being sort of a stand-in for King, I always say it was a taller, kind of shaggier guy, and David Keith was kind of that, so it fits into my mental image. Dreyfus is not what I would have seen him as, but Dreyfus would have played the hell out of that part, especially in the early 80s. And then one interesting bit is Andy is having these suspicions about the powers and everything and all that stuff, and he actually travels out of town to go and meet Quincy again and pushes him, and that's where he finds out all the backstory of what's going on with the lot experiments. And that's what's interesting is instead of Andy's at work one day and suddenly has a premonition, no, they take that opportunity if he's out of town to pounce in, and that's when they decide to get Charlie. And then that, of course, leads to the whole... It actually sticks to the book pretty closely with him finding Vicky with the fingernails ripped out and then chasing and confronting the guys at the rest stop and then having to deal with all the people at the rest stop. And he's pushing everybody left and right. And that's just overwhelming him. And I like that they kept from the Lancaster draft, the scene where he has to tell Charlie what happened to her mother and she flash fires the bathroom. (laughs) But what I love is also then there's an added moment where, you know, this is the first time he's told Charlie about his powers and she's like, 
like, could you push me so that I don't have to make any more fires? Yeah, I loved that. And he tries. He's going to do it for a second and kind of tries, but then he realizes he doesn't want to. I actually got from the script that he legitimately tried, and because of the nature of her, he can't. Yeah. Well, I read it as you could take it that way when he said, I can't. He said, I'm the one who has to try, not you. And he tries it again, and then he says, I can't. Or because of something in terms of his emotion, like he was starting to well up or something right before that, and then it was, I can't. And then right after that, the scene moves. They have to run, or something comes up, and they have to get moving. See, I just thought, in the way the script described it, because the script did an interesting thing of describing how the sound effects got on the sharper frequency whenever he did the push. Yeah. And they described the sound stay normal. So I was getting the sense that he was describing that he was trying, legitimately trying to. Trying and failing. (laughs) <laughs> and it's just because of the way that Charlie's wired mentally. He can't get in. He, she is literally superior to both him and Vicky. They can't touch her. Yeah. I just looked him up. Richard Dreyfus at this point in his career was just doing a lot of lukewarm romance comedies like Whose Life Is It Anyways, The Buddy System, Down and Out in Beverly Hills. <laughs> his career post-Close yeah. Encounters did lull there for a little while. So I think this would have been a really nice thriller to really get him to jump back on the screen. Yeah, especially it would have been the right age and it would have worked really well. Yeah. Because, I mean, I do remember thinking it was odd. He must have had a contract with Touchstone, or at least he worked with him a couple times. That Down and Out was a decent-sized hit and started to bring him back. And then I remember being really surprised because I saw it in theaters and loved it. I was 12. What really seemed to help bring him back was Stakeout. <laughs> yeah, and that took a while. I was a big kid. But even then, he didn't stay back. <laughs> no. Kippendorf Stribe, hey. Yeah, right where that he was swinging wildly for an Oscar with that Silent Fall. Mr. Holland's Opus? No, that was right after. Okay. He tried it with Silent Fall and failed miserably, did Kippendorf Stribe. That actually might have been after Mr. Holland's Opus, but I remember Mr. Holland's Opus, you could tell he really wanted another one. And new. Yeah. Dreyfus is an interesting actor. I think he's a very good actor, but he doesn't always get attached to the best properties. And I don't think has the best agent. And from what I hear, he's not the easiest person to work with, too. (laughs) No. (laughs) But I think him and John might have actually figured it out. Because, hey, if John can manage to work with James Woods, who is notoriously terrible to work with. Well, I think a lot of those actors like that like to push directors around because they want to see how much they can get away with. And if the director isn't there to be pushed around. And John has fun playing with that. Yeah. If they're not there to be pushed around or pushed back, like, oh, that's the game you want to play, they tend to respect them more. Yeah. I don't understand people like that. I mean, you'll find people like that in every aspect of life, and I don't get that at all. One of the other interesting things is the Lancaster draft tried the thing where Charlie is aging as the story goes along. So there were like four distinct periods where it's like her is a four-year-old, her is an eight-year-old, her is maybe more like 11, 12. Here, they get a couple of moments when she's a toddler, but otherwise she's pretty squarely eight years old for the remainder of the film. Mm-hmm. And the time frame is compressed. Yes. It's going back more to what the book was. The book did not really have these significant jumps when she aged. Because it'd be like, even in Lancaster Draft, when they go hide in the cabin, they're in the cabin for a long time. There's even a bit (laughs) where we jump several years, and it's like, Charlie's now older and at school, and he has the whole self-help style agency. And it's like, they were not going to have a consistency to actors playing Charlie. They were going to have like several different actors as she ages. But I think it's much stronger to have a single consistent actress. Definitely. And I think, again, we got that with the film. Even in the movie and in the feeling of this Phillips draft, the biggest jump, if we're talking about the movie, and I think that does carry over to this, from the point that you're really having any kind of flashback scenes in the movie, that's all played by Drew Barrymore, and it conceivably be played by the same actress in this. Yeah, I think the way they made her look younger is here she has pigtails. Yeah, and she's wearing this little nightgown. 
But otherwise, you know, from the moment they're on the run, they stay in the cabin for one season. And then I think maybe a period of a few weeks go by when she's in the compound. But otherwise, it doesn't really take a significant chunk of time. The biggest jump of time is the three months. Yeah. From the time they get caught to the time we catch up with them in the compound. And then in this version, it seems like it might be at most two weeks. No, in this version, it does actually have the caption three months. No, 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 no. I mean, after that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It jumps them forward. We catch up with them in the compound. Yeah. It superimposes on the screen. Yeah. From that day that we catch up with them, when the action full-on shifts to the shop compound and they are both prisoners, it feels like it could conceivably, I mean, I couldn't give you an actual calendar, but it's a lot quicker to the point right. where things aren't planned out. They just happen. <laughs> right. And I like that. I liked the way that happens. Overall, I think it handles it better in and again, I think that is more true to the book and the finished film of the Lancaster draft just jumped around too much to the point where it was hard to remember where you were on the timeline, what the age was. I think there were even some bits where it was a bit inconsistent there. This one, it's much more focused and again, sets it so you can have a singular actress play that part. Mm -hmm. I would be curious to learn, was Drew already in the running for this? Because E.T. would have been out around this time. I, I'll just give this away. John was not a fan of E.T. <laughs> he not only didn't like the movie, but I think he really disliked how much it killed the thing and took it personal. And I was just thinking this thing. I don't know that he would have been down to have Drew in this. And I don't think Poltergeist was out yet by this point, so he couldn't have gotten that girl. Oh, yeah, Heather O'Rourke. It's hard to guess who would have starred in this other than Drew Barrymore, because at the time, you had Drew Barrymore or you got an unknown. <laughs> Basically. So we have them on the run, the whole bit with the cab driver, the whole bits at the airport, setting the soldier's shoes on fire, all that's still here, her getting the money from the phone booths. So you had all that stuff is still in here, them in the motel, and then ultimately leading up to the Manders farm. Again, they keep the bit of Irv from the Lancaster draft of him being kind of an aging hippie, but in that draft, he was a draft dodger and protester. And in this one, he was a Vietnam vet who was burned out by the war. And then he deserted and it was on the run for a while. So he has no love of the government. No. And then this, of course, leads up to the farm where we hear the story and then the government agents come. I was sad that we lost the Lancaster edition of the one agent literally turning into a giant human boil and bursting. <laughs> yeah. Rob Bottin probably would have demanded they put that back. <laughs> yeah. But one of the very interesting additions that we have is by, again, revealing that Quincy, the old college buddy of Andy, is now one of the scientists who's still involved with this thing. Quincy has developed goggles that can, we actually never see it tested, but that can presumably block Andy's eye-to-eye -eye connection that allows him to do the mental manipulation. What did you think of the whole addition of the mental blocking goggles? I thought it was interesting because I didn't quite get what it was at first. I thought, is this some kind of infrared thing? Is it something where they can read when Charlie is about to go off, essentially? I read it originally as having something to do with her. I didn't get that it was Andy. Oh, because they specifically had a line about it of like, he needs to look you in the eye for his powers to work. I must not have registered that completely because it wasn't until a little bit later when someone had taken him off. But I went, oh, that's what the whole damn thing was for. And then a little further down, it happened again and they had to take the goggles off for it to work. And some other guy had him on and he just, whatever. 
But yeah, no, I thought it was an interesting little detail, but they didn't really explore it to any great degree. Yeah, because you, you never actually see him try to use his powers on someone who's wearing goggles. Yeah. So, I mean, it never really comes into play. So it's just kind of there as a nice little, oh, that's interesting, but then it doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, all you needed was a moment where he's the first one to step out of the farmhouse and then tells the agents, you're going to want to get in your cars and leave. And they all just look around and say, that's not going to work on us anymore, sir. Would have worked. It's just such a little detail that it doesn't intrude on the story, but it's just a nice visual gimmick. If I could just picture Carpenter shooting this film where they're all basically wearing these black welder's goggles, <laughs> and then throughout the entire compound, everyone is wearing asbestos suits and welder's goggles. <laughs> that would have been a weird visual, yeah. Yeah, just a cool visual. And again, it reminds me of like the bits in They Live where everyone has the sunglasses on and stuff like that. Yeah. Like I even have these great moments where Andy's like, it's been so long since I've seen anyone's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then the Manders Farm scene happens, and one thing that I love Phillips is how vividly he describes the waves of heat that Charlie gives off. Yeah. These ripples of heat, you know, not even seeing the fire, just seeing the ripples of heat, which would have been very tricky to pull off in that time. And they didn't quite pull it off with the whole fan in her hair. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things, I don't know how well they would have pulled it off, but it's so vivid, just these ripples and waves just emanating off of her. And like, there's this bit where her powers get out of control and he has to talk her down and Andy slaps Charlie to snap her attention back. And it's like the moment he slaps her, the entire top floor of the farmhouse explodes in fire. And it's like, Jesus, that would have been a visual moment. Yeah, I, I really do like his use of description in that scene. In thinking about what you were saying in terms of how would they pull it off back then, there's other stuff. The idea that when she's really rolling with that power pumping out of her, yeah. it creates kind of a little bubble around her yeah. that everything else is emanating from. There's a lot of Akira-esque things to how these powers work in terms of there's this bubble around her. It's like, I could see how they would execute that today. But at that time, man, it would, would have been tricky. Yeah. And this was before John had started doing work with ILM, who did some really lovely effects for him for Starman. True. So I don't know what studio they could have gotten to that would have layered it nicely so you have like these bubbles and these ripples and these flares. And it, honestly, it is so much easier to just go with fire. And I know in an interview that I saw with Phillips, how he was like trying to come up with these really striking visual ways to describe the heat and the fire. And how he was kind of disappointed that, yeah, in the film, they just poured gasoline on the dirt and just lit it up. <laughs> or he was not impressed with the balls of fire. Yeah, I <laughs> like those just in terms of, holy shit, look at that, boom, and then it's, you know. As we mentioned, I still think the finished film did some really great work mixing the stunt work with the pyrotechnic effects, and I still thought they did perfectly fine. I think they're writing to a level that I don't know you could have pulled off at the time, but it would have been interesting to see what they would have done. Well, the attempt would have been interesting. I don't know yeah. whether they pulled it off. One of the interesting things about the Manders farm is after Charlie and Andy leave, some agents corner the Manders and literally just execute them on the spot. Yeah. I dug it, man. Yeah. <laughs> Not so much as I wanted to see either of them go. No. I had no problem with the characters or thought, oh, that makes it so much better. But because of the Lancaster draft, he fly out killed Irv there and left yeah. Norma bereft and holding her corpse of a husband. And that's where we leave them. That's it. And so, especially considering the way his ended, where it never goes back to them, I doubt there would have been a shitload of audience members gone. But what happened to that lady at the farm? I know. That it's a loose end. Yeah. So I do really dig that Phillips is just like, since I'm not going back to them anyway, I'm not going to leave any room for interpretation. There's not going to yeah. be any, well, I wonder what, no, just boom, 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 boom. They're yeah. all gone. 
They're dead. Both of them are gone. And honestly, it doesn't make sense that the agency wouldn't. There's already been so many dead bodies on that farm. Why wouldn't this agency, given how cruel they are and all their motives and all manipulations and all stuff, why wouldn't they just leave two more? (laughs) I think the book did a decent job of bringing them back in the story and the epilogue, but it's not necessary. I don't think the finished film really managed to make it feel necessary to bring them back, even though they did. There's no real reason for them to come back into the story. There are, again, more victims left in the wake of this whole situation. Yeah, I think King did that, and I think they kept it because she's lost her dad, the one link that she had. The person that she thought was her friend is not her friend, and she aced his ass. See, but that's where I like the Lancaster draft is it just ends with her riding away on the horse. You know, you don't need to say where she ends up to just leave us on the question of, well, where does she go from here? Yeah, that's very true. And leaving it ambiguous in that fashion is kind of exciting in a way, because, of course, that always allows an audience to choose their own adventure. And I think that Big Steve, what was killing this kid's dad so horribly in front of her, he wanted to give her something and also give a little bit of an olive branch to the audience in the sense of, okay, okay, look, I know, I know I made you care about this fucker for the whole book. And I I know you probably thought he and the kid were going to escape. I'm sure that that's what you thought was going to happen. And then I killed him. I know. I know. I'm awful. I know. But hey, let me just give you guys a little bit of something to where you kind of get an idea that, hey, Charlie, she might be all right. She's going to tell her story to Rolling Stone. And she's got people who actually want to see good things happen for her and don't want her to get hurt. She's got people on her side for good reasons, not with their own agenda. So she's kind of safe. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of that, and that's where I'm going to leave it. I know. I can kind of get that. But I never got that she wasn't safe because she had literally just devastated the entire facility, and now (laughs) she is willing to fight for her own survival. That's true. And it ends us on the note. And again, we'll get to the end more here coming up. But again, yeah, I don't think the story needs the Manders any further, and this is a perfectly fine way to end and them too. Yeah. Not perfectly fine, like, oh, that was fine and dandy, but you know, <laughs> yeah. it's fitting the story that this would happen to them. Yes. Yeah. I did really like it. When I was reading it, the camera pans up, you hear four shots, and I was like, oh, shit. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. I dig that. Just close the page on that book right there. Yep. You know, it's not open ended. There's no ambiguity. It's like, hey, I don't need them anymore. It also illustrates, like you had said, just how cold blooded and ruthless this particular government offshoot is. I don't know. I think that was just four cars simultaneously backfiring, and they're really fine. <laughs> But it said shots in the script, Noel. I know. Well, they were getting inoculated. <laughs> but it said from pistols. <laughs> Aha. I have logic to you. They had to put down those chickens. Okay. All right. Okay. See, now that I can get behind. That dirt saw too much. It needed to be silenced. <laughs> the Manders, they're fine. They're, you know, they're legally protected. What are you looking at, Scarecrow? Bam, bam, bam. See, and I think in the book, <laughs> I'm trying to remember, I think it was just that fire truck showed up before they could do anything. That's why they had to just silence them with money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then we get all the stuff in the cabin. What's interesting is instead of, I'm trying to remember, in the book, was it their grandparents' cabin? Because I know it was in the film. In the book, it was, yeah. In this one, it's he just somehow has enough money to rent a cabin. Yeah. Even though we still come up with jokes that he's paying with change. <laughs> Who's to say? Who's to say? But again, this is where we get some more nice moments. Like the old guys in town are like, oh, that's an odd fella. And I like fun little bits. Like I love him and Charlie having got groceries, getting to the cabin for the first time and they're trudging through the snow. And again, 
moment of frustration followed by moment of bonding as they just play in the snow. And <laughs> I'm trying to remember if this was in the book or not. I know it was in the Lancaster draft. I like the moment where he fails to set a fire and just kind of falls asleep cold and wet. And Charlie lights the fireplace and then lights a candle to go into the kitchen and finds a bit of soup, but the gas isn't connected on the stove, so she boils the soup herself. You see these moments of her, instead of just like locking away her powers, you see these moments of her gradually finding little ways to start using her powers. And I don't remember that scene in the book, but I know it was in the Lancaster. I don't think it is in the book. I don't remember it being there. Because I know in the book, she like swears off using her fire ever again. Mm -hmm. And yet you see her in this script gaining this little bit of acceptance of it. You don't really have these whole scenes of her saying, I promise I'll never light a fire, never make me light a fire again. No. I think it's like she's had this release and now she's a little more at peace with what she's capable of. Yeah, I think she's done it and she's like, I can do that. And if I have to do it again, I will do that. Mm -hmm. I think she seems pretty... Not comfortable in terms of controlling it or having the experience to control it, but she's comfortable using it. So that leads to them getting shot with the drank darts again. And again, I think they're there for a very short amount of time because when they go there, it's snowing and it's still in snow that they're hit with the darts because they're cutting down the tree for firewood. Yeah. So they're only there for not even a full season. They're just there for maybe a month or two. I kind of like that we never really see what sold them out because you see him sending the letter with the UPS guy, but we never see the UPS guy getting intercepted. No. We see the old guys at the diner noticing him, but we never see anyone sneak away to make a secret phone call. None of that. You think, you know, it's a little suspicious. Maybe someone's up something, but we're living our lives. We're living quietly. And then out of nowhere, the drank darts come out of the woods. Yeah. When I was reading it, it caught me by surprise because there hadn't really been any buildup for them having been watched. Yeah. And I liked that it surprised me. Like, oh, this is happening now. Oh, okay. There had been no interception of the mail truck. None of those old guys doing their thing. At the end of that one scene, one of them watches him leave, but then it just cuts to the next scene. Exactly. You don't see him do anything. You don't hear anything about it. And then suddenly it just happens. That was one of the instances of compression that I really liked in terms of it didn't draw a lot of shit out. Yeah. You know, to the point where once he takes that flight to go see Quincy and then comes back and everything moves. And they're not on the run for very long before it jumps to that Albany airport scene. Yeah. It just goes. It cuts out a lot of that stuff. So they're not even on the run for that long, really. If you're counting the month or two that they're at the cabin, you get the idea that they had been on the run for maybe a week before they got there. Mm -hmm. It just cuts out a lot of that bullshit and it just moves it. And also that adds some more suspense. So if you don't quite know what's going on, you don't quite know if they're on to them, if they're not on to them, it adds more suspense. I think it did a good job at that too. So we finally are at the facility. And again, as we put out, this is a 137 page script by page 100. <laughs> That's when they get there, yeah. <laughs> we're at the compound. I looked at the page count too. And it was like, if we're going for the page equals a minute, we're here and there's less than 40 minutes of screen time left. Yeah. That's different than the other structures because normally it was about half and half. Yeah, because it was about half of the book was in the compound because then they had the whole John Rainbird relationship. But yeah, I think the movie, it's still only the last third, but still. I think the compression definitely helps them in terms of it doesn't need to be as long or wasn't as long as it could have been if they were following the book. Well, and again, Bill Phillips is a denser writer, so the page count to minute thing doesn't quite hold up as well. (laughs) And then I just say that from I've read his Christine script, which I want to say was like 140 pages long, and they didn't really cut much of that out of the finished film. It's just he describes it a little thicker, so it runs a little longer. 
So before we get back to Andy and Charlie in the compound, I think this is a good time to talk about what they did with the villains. Because now the Lancaster draft, they completely removed John Rainbird and brought in a woman, I think it was Roberta Rav. Rav, yeah. She's the main scientist dealing with the Lot 6, and Cap is the main director. And here... Boy, have they kinked up that relationship a bit. (laughs) There's definitely a growing sexual relationship between her and Cap, but then you also get the addition of Quincy, where she is more focused on Charlie, Quincy is more focused on Andy, and Cap is constantly stuck in the whole, should I just kill these test subjects or should we actually keep moving forward with this? And of course, Rav, instead of just stating her case, like in the Lancaster draft, is plying him with sexual favors. (laughs) So it's definitely an interesting relate. What what did you think of that whole triumvirate? I think compared to the Lancaster draft, Philip strengthened some of the issues I had with that character of Rav. Mm -hmm. In terms of Quincy, I find it interesting the way they had him replace, I can't remember that other scientist's name. I know. The one who eventually... Sticks his hand in the garbage disposal. Yeah. Yeah, garbage disposals itself. Though they don't have him do that. No. He gets to be the other guy as well. It's like they're folding in two characters into one. They're they're turning him into a composite for two other characters. The same way that Rob is kind of the Rainbird composite, Quincy in this is the other two scientists. Yeah, because that initial scientist, he's been entirely removed too. Yeah, and it seems as if part of his stuff is with Rob, but most of it goes to Quincy. Though parts of it also go to Cap, where Cap is the one who's worried about Charlie cracking the earth in half. Yeah, the nuclear thing, yeah. Talking about pituitary when she hits puberty Mm -hmm. and whatnot. I liked it. I thought it was efficient Yes, in a way that would have worked really well. I think Carpenter would have taken well to it because he's a director who doesn't seem to be interested in a lot of muss and fuss. Like, let's just get in and do the damn thing. And Mm -hmm. that might have been some of his notes for Phillips. Like, hey, let's tighten this up a little bit. Let's make it a little more streamlined and just let me do my thing. So, you know, and I don't think they even streamlined it. I think they actually expanded it, but I think did it in a way that actually gave them character because I think Cap and Rob were lacking character. Definitely. They were just your token, he's the military guy, she's the scientist, and yeah. they're evil. Yeah. And in this one, there's a lot more going on. And again, they spread this throughout the film, so it's not just all compressed here. But I God, I even just love that one scene where all three of them are in the gym. Oh, yeah. And they're having this conversation as, you know, she's huffing it on the exercise bike. Quincy is doing sit-ups in and out of frame. And Cap is at a weight machine that he can't lift the weights on. So he's constantly adjusting the weights lower and lower and still can't lift it. And he it. still can't lift it. <laughs> he is worthless. Yeah, I love how Cap is just this kind of pathetic guy. And Rob is really the one who's running the show. Yeah. He feels more like a bureaucrat to me in this one in an effective kind of way in terms of in the other versions of the story going all the way back to the novel, he's still the head of the shop and yeah. as such is doing a lot of that bureaucracy bullshit and bad handing and double talking and all that shit. But there was a sense that he had a military bearing. In this, it feels like he's more <laughs> incompetent in a realistic way, like a guy who's just like, okay, I kind of get this and this part kind of freaks me out. You know what? This is really difficult and I don't really want to deal with it. Look, can't we just kill him? Yeah. Wouldn't that be easier? It would be easier for me. And I just thought that was really funny. And the way that Rob is a fuller, rounder character. I think it's funny that you said that it does expand it because it does. It just, it feels streamlined because it seems to flow smoother for me as a reader. Rob just works better for me in this one, especially the stuff with her and Charlie. Yes. What I liked is we actually got the character of her as the housekeeper. You don't have the whole thing with Rainbird where, you know, he was a scarred vet and is just terrified of the dark. You have 
basically her version of the housekeeper is a very ditzy kind of flighty comedy character who brings her candy and charlie warms to that she's also a character that you underestimate because she just kind of seems really oh they gave me this asbestos suit but it just kind of looks funny i'm not gonna wear it you know (laughs) what do you think you think of it no i don't know it's interesting because it's like rob is played as this very steely manipulator and then when she comes in as the housekeeper it's like you've a janaya doubtfire (laughs) (laughs) i could really see having some fun with the comedy of that character and it's such a different take yeah my question is do you think it still makes up for completely removing rainbird i think it makes up for it more in this version of course, I still miss Rainbird. I think he's mm-hmm. a very effective villain. I think he's very unique and all the things that we discussed before that I don't need to rehash here. But this version of Rob, I think, did so much to shore up the issues I had with getting Charlie to play along. And I think the compression helps to a degree here, too. There's not as many testing scenes. I think it's just one big one, really. In terms of her with Charlie... In the Lancaster draft, it felt very perfunctory. Yeah. Like, this is happening because we need it to happen, not because we're actually illustrating how or why. And again, Phillips, being stronger at the human moments, knows how to actually pull that off. Yeah, like you said, he makes her into a character that disarms Charlie because Charlie can only take her so seriously. Yeah. You know, she doesn't seem like she exudes any kind of scary authority. And not just because she's a housekeeper and therefore lowlier down on the totem pole, but the way she goes about it. I think that was also very smart that in terms of any kind of carrot they're going to dangle in front of her, they just had her cut to it and said, look, just tell them you'll do this one thing if you let me see my dad. The way that they played that so straightforwardly worked for me. And there's a lot of ways you could write that where it'd be like, oh, that's just kind of too easy, isn't it? Because the way that she presented it to Charlie and what she had been building up to it with, and especially the whole thing about I've seen your dad too. But what I like is, again, how she's such a different characterization that it's so casual of, oh, yeah, he's a nice guy. He's in a room down there. She's just so tossing these things out. And it's like, even if she were just a housekeeper, it would be amusing just how casually unaware she is of the seriousness of the situation she's in. Yeah. Uh, you might not let telltales out of school about these two particular people. But And then that's, what again, what makes her so disarming as a persona that's being adopted by one of the villains. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it works on Charlie, because she is yeah. so casual about that. And it's also kind of flattering in a way and makes Charlie... Reminds her of the familial and parental relationship she has with him, the way she tosses off, oh, that's right, such yeah. a nice man. But she also adds in, of course he's your dad, or something like that. Like, it makes sense he'd be your dad, yeah. sweetheart. You know, you're both so nice, which kind of puts Charlie on the comfort level more than it does the defensive. Yeah. Like, she would be proud of that, to know that someone saw her in her dad or her dad in her, or of course it makes sense that that's your dad, because, you know, he did such a good job raising you. And that would make her feel like a good girl and proud, like, yes, that's what I want to be. I want to be Andy McGee's little girl because he's my daddy and I love him. And what I'm glad at is that they didn't make it that she's trying to be a maternal replacement for Vicky because that would have been a very yeah. obvious route to go. Yeah. But I think it would have also been trickier. So it's more unexpected that she's more a goofy person that you would see as a friend. Yeah. But it does play very well. Yeah. And it made more sense to me specifically. My only thing is, talk about how great they compressed and streamlined. I do think they needed more time to develop it. I do think there needed to be more time spent in the compound. Again, just character-wise, because it does still seem to move by pretty fast. And I think that's where, again, we needed to shorten the first two-thirds of this into making that the first half of this, and then make the compound the second half. 
The Manders Farm really does need to be an end of Act 1, not the end of Act 2. <laughs> Agreed. And again, like I think Quincy, while I thought it was a really interesting idea to take this old college friend and build him into one of the other bad guys too, Quincy doesn't really get much development. He's there. It's more just the twist is his presence, but you don't really get to spend much time building on him as a character, especially the whole how does this play on the relationship that he had with Andy. Yeah, it doesn't really affect that very much other than Andy realizes he's part of it and then that it's pretty much over. I mean, what if part of this is building on he was Andy's friend, but then Andy pushed him and now he's had enough time away from that push to realize he's been pushed and kind of resents Andy for pushing him. Yeah. You could build an interesting thing there because, again, we don't really build at all in this draft on the long-term consequences of Andy's pushing. No, not as much. We don't have echoes at all. No. I mean, I think that has a lot to do with, again, the compression of the time frame at the end because everything moves very fast. And I think that's probably where Quincy gets hurt the most because if it had been stretched out longer the way that it was in the movie, the book, and even the other draft. I think you would have seen more with that relationship you wish had been bolstered a little bit between Ditsy, play-acting Rav, and unwitting Charlie. I think that relationship would have been filled out a bit more, as would have Quincy. Instead of Cap being the one who Andy pushes. You have Quincy be the one that gets pushed. That's where you build up Quincy's character. Because he knows that they're done with Andy. They're putting him out to pasture. And he wants to have one last bit where he confronts him face to face. And is like, you pushed me a long time ago. Here's how that affected me in the long term. Here's how much work I had to go through just to rebuild my own psyche to get around what you did to me years ago and how it's still affecting me. <laughs> and you have that confrontation with Andy that ends in Andy pushing him. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. And then Andy's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, that's pretty shitty, but I apologize for doing that to you. I know, I know. I probably shouldn't have done it, and I can respect what it put you through and all the work you've had to do. But hey, you're going to do this now. And then he pushes him again. And that would be rad. <laughs> I wouldn't have even had him said that. I would just said, yeah, yeah, take your goggles off. And we finally reveal that the goggles are not what's been blocking Andy's power at all, ever. That would be cool. At the farm, the reason his powers didn't work was just he was gassed out, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You guys have been barking up the wrong tree there, but I admire your enthusiasm. And then either just have Quincy in place of Cap throughout the entire ending, or Quincy brings him to Cap or something like that. But honestly, that would have been a great, because in the script, what you have is a whole bit where during the whole final confrontation, soldiers are surrounding everyone at the stables. Quincy finally reveals himself to Andy, and Andy's just like, Quincy, is that you? And then he just says to Cap, shoot that guy. And then Cap just shoots Quincy, and he's dead. And that's that. As soon as Andy figures out he's there, that's it. Yeah, but if you had to be the Quincy as the person that he's pushed up to all this time, Cap is the person who comes up with this whole army of soldiers to confront Andy, and Andy's just like, that's your boss? That's the guy who's running the place? And Quincy's like, yes, yes, that's Cap. And then Andy's just like, shoot that motherfucker. (laughs) And Quincy just shoots Cap and then goes down in a hail of bullets. If you're going to bring Quincy in to be a more stronger character, he needs to have a much deeper arc. And I think that would have been a way to do it. I agree. That would also then allow you to, in at least one scene, bring in, which the book got into, what are the long-term consequences of the people that he's pushed. Yeah, how do the echoes play out, ultimately? Because in this one, Cap, you don't have any of the echoes, you don't have any of the snakes in the grass or the golf clubs or any of that. 
you just have this fun bit where Andy's like, now give me a tour of the place. And Cap just goes on this big spiel about how, you'll, you'll notice the wood in these rafters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And even as he's dying, even as he's been gunned down and is dying, he's like gurgling out like, you know, the, the roof over there. <laughs> he's still giving the tour. <laughs> yeah. I did like that. But that, I think, is a obvious byproduct of the fact that once Andy uses that push at the end there, the escape is on. Yeah. You know, there is no planning. There is no call ahead. There is no anyone finding out in a computer that, wait, they're scheduled to leave? What's this? And then, hmm, and then Rob figuring things out. Cap unknowingly gives him this momentary opportunity where Cap, and honestly, I just do think that was a bit of weak writing, where Cap walks in and takes off his goggles. And even the people in the control room are like, wait, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> and it's like, I get that they're trying to play the Cap is just underestimating and has written off Andy, but I do think that was weak writing, that Cap just walks in and takes off his goggles. And it's like, no, that doesn't work for me. But I do like the rapid, Andy doesn't have a plan. He's literally flying by the seat of his pants. He has this opportunity. He's now gotten his hands on this guy who runs this place. Can he get out of here before they put it on lockdown? Yeah. And I love how it's like, is there a control guy in the other room? Kill him for me. Yeah. You know, and they're literally walking by. He's either pushing guards or Cap is shooting them. And Wildcap is giving this tour. And I, yeah, it is just this great crank moment. And Rav and Quincy are figuring out what's going on. And it's just all this chaos just literally unfurling around it. That's good stuff. Yeah, I really did like that. So now bringing it back to Charlie, do you feel anything is lost by losing the horses? Well. Because I kind of do. Like I had said, I like the compression or the way that it feels like everything's so streamlined in this version of the story. I do think making this stuff with Rob happen so quickly, again, almost perfunctorily, where it's just, oh, okay, she's going to be the nice one. She's going to be the one to talk to Charlie to do this. Then she's going to go do the test. And then, okay, now it moves. But there's less of her as a character. And one of the great things about the horse is that gets to show her being what she is, which is a little girl. Yeah, It, It allows her to be a kid. And the only time we ever really have that in this are the interactions with her dad. And those are great interactions. We've talked about those and we both like them and like how they were employed here. But that's basically it. I think enough work is done in this script that we don't dislike Charlie, but we would have had more reasons to like her if we got to see her with the horses, got to see her care about something other than, you know, herself and her dad, not to make her sound like she's selfish, like all she cares about is herself and her dad, and that's just not going to play. No, 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 not that at all. And I think the Rob stuff, while I like it much better here than in Lancaster, I think still needed just a little more breathing room and bonding over a scene with the horses would have been nice. Would have worked. That said, I can see why, you know, given the production of this film where they were trying to pare down the budget, having a stable full of horses involved in the whole pyrotechnics of the climax, yeah, it's probably going to be a problem. Granted, they still did it in the final film. They did. <laughs> I don't know that you needed the whole thing of like, as Charlie's burning the entire compound, she sits astride Necromancer. <laughs> <laughs> that was cool. Which was a nice visual, but it's not necessary. Yeah. But even if you don't continue to have the horses be a part, you don't need to build the character of Necromancer, but just have some moment where Charlie feels like she's been rewarded. Like they're not letting her see her dad yet. Here, we'll take you outside. You get to see a horse, ride a horse for a little while. You know, a little more scenes with Rob. You know, following the first test, she never gets anything in return. No. And getting into the test, I do kind of miss that first test where Charlie is throwing a tantrum of like, no, I told you there needs to be a big thing of water. I need to steer it or else it's going to go bad. You need to step outside the room. This is all good. I like how Charlie's just kind of fussing over everything before unleashing because she knows what she can do. Yeah. 
I kind of miss that, but I do like that they did compress the test down into one test that goes to such an extreme that she literally does almost take out the entire compound in that one test. Yeah. So that everything that will happen in the climax that doesn't come to anybody, especially the audience, as a surprise. But what's interesting is that it was supposed to be, because the other tests are she's still in control, even in the finished film and, and the early drafts. Even though the tests are escalating, she's still in control. What was interesting about this draft was the way Cap showed her the newspaper where her father has been framed for the death of Vicky as a way to piss Charlie off. Which it did. Because he <laughs> thinks, oh yeah, that'll maybe get a reaction out of her. And then boy, does he get a reaction out of her. Because <sighs> it's like she's literally <laughs> melting the walls around her. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that, that they do one test that goes so far that they're like, we can never do this again because she might crack the world in half. <laughs> Should we kill her? Well, if we kill her, then we're not really guaranteed to actually get anything. I like that they had that line of, you know, in the the other script, it was like, yeah, Ra's ultimate plan is to just kill and vivisect Charlie. And in this one, she's just like, you know, we're not really going to learn anything through that. We learn much more by actually doing tests. True. And Cap is like, but look what she just did. (laughs) (laughs) And then she kind of relents and is like, okay, all right, all right. right. Yeah. I still want the remains. Yeah. And then finally leading to the big climax where Charlie cuts loose and then her dad gets shot. Okay, so Rainbird got thrown up into the wall of the loft and then burned to a cinder. In the Lancaster draft, Rav explodes into flame and shoots into the sky like a missile. Mm -hmm. And then in this draft, she shoots Rav into the ceiling and it literally has this gout of flame pummeling Rav into the ceiling while Rav is still alive. And then Charlie uses her powers to propel a red-hot flaming pitchfork into Rob's neck, which causes her head to burst in flame. Fuck yeah. That's your Rob Bottin puppet. Yeah. I love that. Especially the glowing fork, because it reminds me of the glowing cross from the fog. <laughs> nice. Blake is back, bitches. <laughs> And then, of course, again, just the waves of fire just destroying everything. And I even love where we cut inside the compound as everything is melting inside from within. It's almost like a microwave. It's all melting from the inside out. (laughs) Again, it's not fire. It's heat. And it's like these typewriters are melting. The walls are melting and all stuff. And I love how it like ends. Nobody gets out but Charlie and Andy. And I love she just destroys everything. And literally, I think they said that everything is just a melted down crater. It's like it didn't explode. It literally just everything. Again, like Akira, how, you know, it's like they would use their psychic powers. It would leave this crater in the floor. Like <laughs> Everything has just been melted down and glazed over. I love that visual. Yeah, it goes pretty hardcore. So, and then our epilogue. Yes. Where we cut away. It's been written off by the news as, you know, Cap Hollister created a firebomb because he was passed over for a promotion. But then we cut to the news studio with Gene Shalit. <laughs> Which was hilarious. And Grant Tinker of NBC. Yeah. Real guy. I'm not familiar with him, but Gene Shalit, you kind of can't not know him. <laughs> yeah. Charlie and Andy just walk into the news studio with the president of NBC, mm-hmm. <laughs> whom Andy has pushed, and just start telling their story over the air of the news wave. And then I love not only that, the circle but then around. you cut back to the small town, the little yep. old man <laughs> who just walks up and changes the channel. <laughs> yep. After saying, I told you there's something odd about that fella. And I just kept thinking to two things. One, the ending of Halloween 3, <laughs> where they get the network to not air the commercial. And he's like, oh, good. I saved the day. And then a kid walks up and changes the channel where another network is playing the commercial. Yeah. They get two out of three. And yeah. on the last one, he said, there's one more. 
And then also the ending of They Live. Hey, baby, what's wrong? <laughs> but also just cutting around as all these situations where all these aliens are subtly sitting around visible, including the newscaster. Jesus Christ, what happened to your face? This was a perfect John Carpenter. You could tell he had his hands in this ending. <laughs> Well, it made me think of the howling. The news lady just turned into a werewolf. I've still never seen the howling. Oh, well, great. Allow me to spoil it for you then. <laughs> I know that. So what did you think about this added epilogue? Well, I dug it. I thought it took the general idea of the ending of the original movie and, of course, the novel. But in such a more playful and biting way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wrapped it up in a more playful way and definitely a happier ending. Because I remember thinking when Andy gets shot in the climax, he gets shot like three times in the arm. And I was like, oh, that sucks. But where's the one that's going to kill him? Yeah. And then, no, just a graze on his neck. And I said, oh, shit, wait a minute. Either someone's going to perform the coup de grace in like some dramatic way. Or Andy might live to fight another day in this version. And he does. And he's the one at the end. And like you said, is pushing fucking Grant Tinker, real guy. When I read that, I was like, what? <laughs> okay, that's awesome in a way. Weird, but very cool. It just seems so interesting that it went for that verisimilitude all of a sudden. It's like, yes, this is the real head of NBC at this particular moment. Uh, just like a newscast. The president of NBC walks in, followed by Andy with a splitting headache. Yeah. <laughs> Saying, we're cutting into this story. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy's all happy, smiling. Yo, everything's fine. Let's just put this guy on the air, okay? That's what we're going to do, okay? It's going to be great. Trust me. I just like the way, after all of that, it all gets wrapped up a little bit happier. And not that I don't appreciate. I always did the balls-out nature of the sucker punch that King gives the audience. I know the first time I read it, I did not expect Andy to die. So, of course, it was heartbreaking. And that was very much by design. I didn't ever feel it was integral to the story, but I thought it worked really well, especially in terms of motivation for Charlie to go out and just lay utter and complete waste. She has nothing but rage and there's nothing left for her and mm -hmm. they are going to pay for taking her daddy from her. They took her mommy. Now they're going to take her daddy. Fuck you. You will all burn. But this, it's kind of like the end of True Romance. Quentin Tarantino wrote it so that Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette do not ride off into the sunset together. Tony Scott was going to do that, but then at the end he was like, you know what, I really love these kids and I want them to get away because I love these characters and I want them to succeed and I want them to be happy. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to shoot it that way and then you tell me what you think. And Quentin Tarantino apparently was like, you know what, I dig that, that's fine. And so it's kind of like that. It did work all this time, just fine with Andy dying. But I've also kind of, in my heart, wanted them to succeed. And I've wanted him and Charlie to get away. And the, the notion that they were going to be safe. And that they stood up to the man and kicked the man's ass. And so there's a bit of that here. A little bit of wish fulfillment for almost 35 years. So I thought that was really cool. I did like that a lot. It's one of those things where I don't think the story is stronger or weaker based on whether he survives or not, because so much yeah. of it has been about getting Charlie to the point where she is willing to use her powers to fight for her own survival. I don't think him still being alive undoes that. And I don't think him dying is necessary for that because you can still push her to that point. Yeah. And again, if you're going to do the whole going to the media story, going back to the Manders farm and them driving her up to the New York Times or Rolling Stone magazine <laughs> is perfectly fine and serviceable and it works. Or the president of NBC breaks in on Gene Shallot with Indian toe. The only thing that could have made that scene funnier is if, as he's trying to tell his story, the president starts whacking around with a golf club looking for snakes in the background. <laughs> 
kind of echoes what Grant Tinker fell into. Let's see. <laughs> he just hears little tinkers in the night. <laughs> Those are your kids, honey. It's not the same. Twinkle, twinkle, little shot. Oh, sorry. And of course, my career in entertainment has now been destroyed. But anyways. <laughs> Sadly, we did not get to read a description of Gene Chalet bursting into flames. <laughs> Charlie, I didn't like his look, Daddy. He just looked stupid. My ratings are on fire. That would be a pretty cool. And then throws himself out a window. Turns into a rocket and flies into the sky. <laughs> but anyways, overall, final thoughts on this script. I do like it more than the Lancaster. I know you enjoy the earlier stuff with the Lot 6 trials more than I did. Not that I disliked it. I'll concede that it's not necessary to the story. I just want to see its own film. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, it was some cool stuff in that. And I like the way he went with it. But this, I think he gets back to the strength of the characters that King created. Mm -hmm. That's always been, to me, not just his great imagination and coming up with fucked up, freaky, scary shit to throw at an audience and freak you right the hell out. But give you people that you really honestly care about to the degree that when something bad happens or they don't get what they want, you're upset. And I think Phillips really regained some of that. And like I said, I did really like the scene where Andy and Charlie were dancing in the cabin. Lancaster was not devoid of those moments or horrible at that stuff. I just think Phillips is better, or at least he definitely used it better in his draft. I responded to that a lot more. It felt like some of the conversation we had been having about being able to compress the time period and make it just, it doesn't have to be so drawn out. It felt almost like somehow in time, your words echoed back and Phillips was like, you're right. We don't need to spend that much time. I just won't do that. And then wrote this. He did spend that time. He just did different things with it. Yeah, no, he did. It just, if we're talking about once we, not the characters, once we as a movie audience arrive at the shop compound. Now, yes, it does say three months later. But in terms of what is being... Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant just time in terms of the page count. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean the way that the time frame in the story itself... Okay, yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm not disagreeing with you on that. Yeah. I just like the way that worked. And I think it really kept the pace up in a, an enjoyable sort of way where some of the things that did fall by the wayside that definitely, I don't think it fatally flawed the material in any way, although I do think it could have strengthened it to have it, like you had brought up, bolster the relationship between Rob and Charlie a little bit more, like stuff with the horse or something like that. Or And then on the flip side of that, with Andy's relationship with Quincy, beef Quincy up as a character. And I do think that did fall by the wayside because of that compression of time. I think that we don't get any more scenes with them because he's not fucking around with that. He's moving. We are hurtling towards the end here folks you know we see the light at the end of the tunnel and we are moving towards it as fast as possible and i think that works i don't know that it would have not been better to have that extra stuff though i do like the increased speed of accumulation that we get in this one as it hurtles towards its climax but do i think that would have made it worse if they had gone ahead and slowed it down a little bit to add those things that you think would have strengthened it no i don't think so and I think that probably strengthened it a bit. And at least if we're going to be dealing with them anyway, like you said, I mean, if you're going to bring Quincy back, give him more to do. I do very much. That's why when you started talking about it, I was like, see, the logistics would be weird. But then when you started talking about it, you wrapped it all up, just basically switch it to where Cap shows up with the army. That's really all you need. And there's a little bit of logistics before that in terms of how is Quincy going to get him out there. But you could have had that in a scene before where Quincy was out walking around with Andy somewhere and maybe not in a tour or something. But the idea that seeing them out might not have been so weird. 
because it's different than Cap. Cap is the head of the entire compound, and he can go pretty much wherever he wants. Whereas if Quincy was walking around with Andy, it might make people go like, wait, are you supposed to be taking him out? But, if, you know, again, logistics, bullshit. Point being that that would have been really interesting for Quincy's character, and it would not have hurt the story. Again, everything is happening so quick that the whole collapse of the escape would still play out around the same amount of speed. Exactly. And it doesn't change anything that needs to happen in order to get everybody where they need to be for the end to go down in a very specific way. It's literally just taking one puzzle piece and replacing it with another, and it still fits. You know, you don't have to manipulate it in a manufactured kind of way where you can feel the gears turning. Mm -hmm. You could do it, and it wouldn't be blatant to anyone who was watching it who hadn't read the book. It wouldn't be something where they go, okay, this feels weird. And then the person next to him goes, yeah, it was the other guy in the book. I don't know why they're doing this. You know, which we've seen in a lot of different adaptations where they change something and it feels arbitrary and you don't know why. But I think they could have done that with Quincy. I think it would have worked. Having said that, I really, really liked this draft. When I finished reading the Lancaster one, I thought, I bet John could make a good movie out of this. When I finished this one, it wasn't, I think he could. It was more, I know he could make a good movie out of this. Mm -hmm. I really think John could have kicked the shit out of this one. (laughs) And I agree. I mean, I still have some problems. I still think it way overpaces the lead up of the story. I think it underpaces the second part of the story. Not the climax, the actual climax from the moment Andy does his push on. I think that is fantastic. It needed a little more room to breathe, and there's room that you could have given that by slimming down the opening. The thing about the Lancaster draft was both drafts are a departure from the material. Both drafts are significant in terms of how they change the story. I think the Lancaster draft was more jarring. It was very inventive in what it chose to change and drop and add and what new directions it chose to go in. But the writing was a little choppier, so it hit you. The changes hit you a little harder in terms of like, oh, hey, what, what, wait, what? This one, I think it's a much smoother adaptation in terms of it thinks about and chews on how far to go with certain changes. And there's changes that it goes even further away from the book. But again, by building the characters of Rav and Cap in the way they do, it still feels like a fit for the material. You could see this relationship between Cap and Rav in a Stephen King novel, even though it's not from a Stephen King novel. The changes are ways that still feel like they fit the story that they're adapting. I think I like those changes quite a bit. More of my changes are just in like specific technique things in terms of I think there are ways that they still could have tightened up the structure. I think there are ways that they still could have accentuated certain ideas better. I still think it's a good script. And again, a lot of those are problems that I had with Christine, too. I really like Christine. Christine was a significant alteration to the book. It made a lot of heavy changes to the book. It very significantly readapted that story, and I liked the ways that it did it. But in terms of just its own specific story mechanics, I think there are still things that it could have fixed and made better and tightened up here and there and shifted certain focuses here and there. So I think the fact that I still like that film, even though I still have those issues with it, means I still would have really liked the film that we would have gotten from John, even though I probably would have had little issues with it here and there. So it's more just my problems would have been little issues instead of broader sweeping issues. Yeah. John, had they just used this script, I would have wished for the script to go through just a couple more drafts of development, even with Phillips on board. But even if you had just shot this draft, with John Carpenter directing it, Rob Bottin doing gore effects, which I don't know that he was, but let's imagine. <laughs> Dean Cundy photographing it. <laughs> John Carpenter doing the score. 
<laughs> getting some of his great team to edit it, getting a great team to light it and design it, get some great actors. Richard Dreyfus in there. I'm pretty sure Burt Lancaster was already signed on to do Cap at this point. Mm-hmm. Imagine Burt Lancaster giving a tour as he's dying. <laughs> <laughs> I would have played. I would absolutely have loved to have seen this film happen. Me too. So, this is what John Carpenter had to say about Firestarter. All right. They wouldn't allow me to make it for the budget I had prepared. They wanted it made very cheaply. I told them I couldn't make it that cheaply. They canceled the picture, but they paid for that decision. I had a pay-or-play deal, so they still had to pay me my full salary. It was the first time I received my entire fee for a movie I never made. Immediately afterwards, I began to seriously question what I was doing. Let me tell you the truth. It was a growth period. I questioned my abilities, my perceptions, and what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't know if I wanted to continue directing because it hurts so much. There are other things I care about. I knew I could just as easily do something else for a living. I realized that regardless of whether my film was a success or a failure, or whether it was a happy or a painful experience, I still loved making movies. That is what I am here for. So as long as someone will hire me to do it, I might as well do it. I was offered many pictures to direct, which was very encouraging. It was the one thing that kept me going. I learned something about failure. It doesn't mean it's the end for you. I don't think that people won't necessarily hire you again because you've had a failure. It depends on your entire body of work. My only job is to make the best film I can. The public can go and see it, or not. There is nothing I can do about that. The public didn't go to see Citizen Kane and the Magnificent Ambersons. They did go to see Deep Throat and E.T. So what the public goes to see doesn't really say anything about the sort of movie you should make. You shouldn't try to second-guess the public. You should only try to make the best film you can and hope that they get it. They're not always going to get it, and that doesn't necessarily mean you've made a bad film or a great film. There are simply no rules. Well said. I think that existential crisis following failure is something that we did actually see crop up throughout John Carpenter's career. Definitely. Man, did he have a lot of failures. And again, not to say the films were bad, but man, did a lot of them not do well. Yeah. It wasn't artistic failures. It was business failures. Later, it became artistic failures. But <laughs> we have our disagreements on that. And I think, you know, again, that speaks to where John just finally retired and is just doing music and having fun doing music. Yeah. Great music, too. I think Universal was unfair in how they wrote him off following what happened to The Thing. Granted, there were a lot of people who did not get the thing at the time. But the reason the thing died was because of E.T. and AIDS. It was not because of the thing. It was unfair of them to write him off and try to force him into making a cheaper budget here that he just couldn't make the film on. And to be fair, I mean, there were some people who said, well, they got Mark Lester because he could do it cheaply. Mark Lester's version was not really that much cheaper than what John was initially asking for. Funny side note, the money that they paid him for the film he didn't make is when he bought his first helicopter. (laughs) That's pretty cool. And then on a final, final note, we had mentioned a little earlier about how John was also in talks to do Armed and Dangerous. I found a Starlog quote. I'm not going to read the whole quote because I did not write it down, but I I found a Starlog interview where he talked about what happened on Armed and Dangerous. And since I don't have enough material to do a full John Ocrafa episode on Armed and Dangerous, we brought it up here. Might as well put a pin in it here. So what happened was John was hired by Dan Aykroyd, but then found out through the grapevine that Dan Aykroyd was second-guessing that decision and was starting to badmouth John and talking about how he's a horrible director. How do we get stuck with this terrible director? So John either was let go by the studio or quit, but he found out about this. And there's a great bit where John said, you know, I don't hold grudges. I don't wish ill on many people, but Dan Aykroyd's going to get his comeuppance one day. (laughs) 
And then when the interviewer brought up, so how do you feel about the fact that not only did Dan Aykroyd quit the picture and was replaced by Eugene Levy, but they brought in Mark Lester, the guy who replaced you on Firestarter. John was like, I'm not happy about any of that. I'm really not. Still not. (laughs) (laughs) Man, armed and dangerous. Boy, even if he had directed it, that probably would not have gone well in terms of behind the scenes. No, and I don't necessarily think Carpenter could have made a great movie out of it. No. It probably would have been something more on the lines of like Memoirs of Invisible Man, where it's like, it's not bad, it's just not quite working. That's exactly what I was thinking. I don't think Memoirs is awful, I just don't think it's good. Whereas I think Village of the Damned is more frustrating for me because... It's a bad movie, which is especially sad because, according to John, he made that film exactly how he wanted to, and he's perfectly happy with the final cut. It does not feel that way. For me, Memoirs and Village are the only ones that I will probably end up owning them at some point because I'm a completionist in that regard, and I want to have all the John Carpenter stuff. There's enough of Memoirs that I enjoy that I own it. Anyways, I think that brings this episode finally to a close. I'm going to be curious what all three of these parts cut down to. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably still going to be a little on the long side. That's all right. Firestarter is one of those properties that I would love to see people keep taking another stab at. I know Firestarter Rekindled is a mess, but it came out of the idea of what if we did a TV series, continuing to follow Charlie McGee as she's on the run. There have been other attempts to do TVs or movies based on Firestarter. I know there was a TV series they were going to do a few years ago just centered on the shop. And I thought, you know, you could do some really fascinating stuff with that. AJ, I don't know, what, what do you think about the future of Firestarter? Would you like to see them keep taking a crack at it? Would you like to see them expand on Firestarter? I definitely think there's stories there that could be told and that would be worth telling. I mean, as usual, it all depends on the execution. But there's material there to explore, for sure. Would I like to see a straight remake or another version of the book, be it a longer, more faithful version for like Hulu or Netflix or something? Yeah, I mean, I'd watch that, but I'd also watch a movie. As far as a TV show based on the shop, you could do that. It wouldn't have to just be about wild talents. It could be like Fringe gone bad, you know? Which was most of Fringe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what I mean. It would be darker and a little more, what the fuck? And that would be cool. I definitely think there's a lot of groundwork that he laid, and he only went so far in any direction. And then you can kind of see where it could keep going if you wanted to keep walking down in that direction. And I think it could be really interesting. I did like the idea of the other guy, the one survivor aside from the McGee's, Mm -hmm. James Richardson, I think he was. You know, you could do something with him. You could do Lot 7, Lot 8, Lot 9. Which they did do in Rekindled, yeah. Yeah, that would be interesting. Could they turn out like Rekindled? Sure, they could, but they could also turn out to be something really worthwhile. Rekindled, the problem wasn't the concept. No, no, it's the execution as always. It's not so much about reinventing the wheel, it's how well you spin it. And if they spin the hell out of it, I'm there, I'll enjoy it. We've had some discussion about remakes and sequels and stuff, and it's always the same. If they made a remake of Firestarter, I would be very happy to watch it. If I enjoyed it or loved it, I would watch it again. If I thought it sucked, I will never watch it again, and I don't have to ever think about it again. And wait a decade or so, and you'll get a new one. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping (laughs) is going to happen with The Dark Tower, because I don't even know if I'm ever going to watch that piece of shit again. Funny you should mention that, because (laughs) there is a remake of Firestarter in the works. and It's been kind of off and on, but they do have someone signed. Uh, They just signed Akiva Goldsman to write and direct. Well, here's hoping he hurries up and gets that out of the way, and then we can (laughs) wait our 10 years, and that comes quicker. Yeah. Fuck it, Akiva Goldsman. 
going to be fun when we get to that era of Schumacast where he's writing <laughs> for Joel. Oh, Jesus Christ. We shall see. We could have had the John Carpenter version. <laughs> It'd be funny if, hey, we live in a world where we get a version of Firestarter directed by Mark Lester and Akiva Goldsman, but not by John Carpenter. Does God hate us? We're not saying he does for sure, but we are saying there's an argument to be made. Is it the God now or is it the anti-God? The anti-God. <laughs> now we know what happens after one nine nine. <laughs> you will not be saved by the gods, Tony. In fact, you will not be saved. Yep. I will end my contributions to this with one very important thought. Fuck Akiva Goldsman. Yeah. There we go. So that's where we ultimately ended up. <laughs> All of this, you're going through the novel, going through the film, going to two drafts of the script. Films that happened, films that never happened, themes, construction, story, character, all these amazing things that we've discussed ultimately boils down to, fuck you, Akiva Goldsman. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Masters of Carpentry can be found at mastersofcarpentry.blogspot.com and is in no way affiliated with John Carpenter or the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. Our theme music is Black Rainbow by Jack Locke. To hear more, please visit jacklock.com. That's J-A-K-L-O-C-K-E dot com. <laughs>